This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 219 of the program. Today is Friday, November 22nd, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increase their monthly pledge. And that includes Adam Prine, Brad Ham, Brandon, Chewy Treme, Claudette Cohen, Haba Ristra, Jeremy Friedman, Jordan Derrett, Kimberly Battle Casey, Michelle McConnell, Ravi Yajnik, Teresa, Thomas Slife, Wasmers, and Zachary Fluke. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com forward slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. As usual, we have a jam-packed episode. So um, what we have on the agenda for today's show is uh, Joe Biden, who laughably suggested that marijuana is a gateway drug. He said this recently, not in 2010, but in 2019. We'll talk about Jen Uger's congressional run, Elizabeth Warren's triangulation on Medicare for All, Pete Buttigieg's disingenuous attempt to appeal to black voters in South Carolina, Bernie Sanders slams Donald Trump's endorsement of Israel's lawlessness, we'll talk about Fartgate, and on top of that, we'll talk about the conservative meltdown over Chick-fil-A, we'll talk about the Democratic Party primary debate, AOC describes the pressure that members of Congress feel to conform, and she'll also give us reasons why impeachment is good and why we should support impeachment. We'll talk about the Pete Buttigieg surge, along with Mark Cuban, who is another billionaire who's going to explain to us why capitalism is good and why we can't have nice things like Medicare for All. And finally, we will close the show by talking to 2020 congressional candidate Melanie Dorigo. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's program. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the show. Let's go ahead and waste no time and get right to it. So elitist Pete's presidential campaign was on the brink of death until the mainstream media wished a surge into existence and then lo and behold, he started actually surging. It's almost like the mainstream media has way more influence than people realize. Now at first, you know, it was evident that they were overstating the surge, they were being overly hyperbolic, but after weeks of fawning coverage and nonstop praise, well, he now actually is surging. And it's to the point where I don't think we could ignore these numbers. This is pretty startling, actually. So according to a CNN poll, he jumped to first place in Iowa and is now leading with 25%. That's nine points ahead of the person in second place. And that's Elizabeth Warren. Now, it's not just Iowa, because in New Hampshire, he also jumped to first place there, and he's leading by 10 points, according to a St. Anselm College poll. Now, even though national polling only puts him at 8.3%, when you look at RCP averages in Iowa, well, he's taking the lead overall. And while he's not in first overall in New Hampshire as of yet, you can see a sharp increase, and he just recently passed Bernie Sanders. Now, they are still technically statistically tied at the moment, but nonetheless, he is on the same trajectory in New Hampshire that he was in in 
Iowa. Now, the reason why Iowa and New Hampshire matter is because even though he doesn't have much support nationally, if a candidate wins Iowa and New Hampshire, that can propel that candidate uh, with a lot of momentum to first place, and they could win the nomination. Uh, Barack Obama ended up winning Iowa, and that really propelled him to victory when everyone thought that Hillary Clinton already had the primary wrapped up back in 2008. So if he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, he could win the entire thing, which is really great news for Donald Trump, because out of head-to-head matchups tracked by Real Clear Politics, Pete Buttigieg has the worst chances against Donald Trump with a 4.5% lead overall. Now, of course, that still is a lead nonetheless, but Hillary Clinton was also leading at the same point in time in 2015. But we all know how the 2016 election turned out. She ended up losing to Donald Trump. Now, the difference between Hillary Clinton and Pete Buttigieg is that at this point in time, she actually was polling higher against Donald Trump with an average of 5.8 percentage points ahead of Donald Trump based on a sample of polls that I selected from that period. And yes, I did do the math and averaged these out. She was doing better than Pete Buttigieg. And when you compare Pete Buttigieg's general election matchups with other candidates, he performs the worst against Donald Trump. For example, Biden beats Trump on average by 10 points. Bernie beats Trump on average by almost 8 points and beats him in crucial Rust Belt states that Hillary Clinton lost. Warren beats Trump by 7.3 points on average. Even Kamala Harris beats Trump by 5.3 points. And when you look at all of the hypothetical matchups between Pete Buttigieg and Donald Trump, I mean, you can see that it's a toss-up. Trump wins about half the time. And the problem is that you know, Donald Trump hasn't started going in on Pete Buttigieg yet. In the event he were to be the nominee, I think, you know, it would be reasonable to expect Pete Buttigieg's numbers to plummet. Now, you need a really large cushion because I think that Donald Trump will be successful at possibly driving down support of whoever the Democratic Party nominee is. So you need to have someone as the nominee who can lose at least a couple of percentage points. But I think that Donald Trump would paint him as an elitist who's out of touch. Donald Trump would run his fake populist campaign again. And I think that Donald Trump would most likely drive down support for Pete Buttigieg and beat him. Um, now, you can argue that I'm wrong because polling says otherwise right now. Okay, that's fine. But again, just remember that Hillary Clinton was polling better than Pete Buttigieg is polling now against Donald Trump at this point in time. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to describe this as um, be prepared for another four years of Donald Trump if Pete Buttigieg is the nominee. So, I mean, the problem is that the media, by propping up Pete Buttigieg in this way, they are inadvertently helping Donald Trump because if Donald Trump is going up against anyone, he should hope it's Pete Buttigieg because Pete Buttigieg fares the worst against him in head-to-head matchups. Now, Pete Buttigieg isn't doing any favors for himself because as he managed to move back into the spotlight, well, I mean, he's really letting his inner Republican show, which means that the Democratic Party base will be demoralized. They likely would stay home as they did for Hillary Clinton, not support him. He wouldn't have the support of young people. And that would pretty much guarantee that he's not going to be successful. Now, to give you, you know, a little bit of examples of what I'm talking about here, he is using Republican talking points against Medicare for All, and he conspicuously turned on Medicare for All after the industry started donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to his campaign. He is now arguing against free college because millionaire and billionaire children will take advantage of free college. You know, this is nothing more than pseudo-adversarialism because rich people's kids do not go to public schools, they go to private schools. And if he really was about you know, sticking it to the elites as he's trying to make you think he is here. 
he'd just be in favor of a wealth tax. And get this, his climate advisor is a fossil fuel-funded witness for the Trump administration's lawsuit against the children's climate change lawsuit. Great guy here. And on top of that, he also unironically floated the idea of sending U.S. troops to Mexico to combat gang and drug violence that is literally happening because of our war on drugs. So he's bad on the policy, and part of the reason that Pete Buttigieg shouldn't be propped up by the media is because you're not going to win this election without the support of black people, which he absolutely is struggling to win over, for good reason, because of scandals that are plaguing his campaign with regard to South Bend. And on top of that, you're not going to win if you don't have young people behind you. Young people are not on board with what Pete Buttigieg is offering, because even though he touts himself as the millennial who's going to bring about generational change, this is a millennial with boomer energy. He is not on board with what we want. And on top of that, he's proposing things that will not only demoralize young people and discourage them from voting, but he's proposing things that we are going to fucking hate, like a national service program. I mean, I'm sure that every millennial is just thrilled about this. Now, he also recently got booed by young people for disparaging Medicare for All. Take a look at this video. That is why we need to deliver health care to every American, because you're not free if you don't have it. Now, now the way I would do it is to deliver Medicare for all who want it, take a version of that, That was young people who was shouting him down, who was shouting Medicare for all at him. Um, on top of that, when he thinks not very many people are watching, look at how condescending and dismissive he is to young people who are concerned about climate change. This is a video from the Sunrise Movement. Do you support the Green New Deal? Public yeah, check, check out online so you can see how our uh, our uh, idea of uh, dealing with but climate works. So act, that was just uh, you can see my housing plan. I don't know about other people's, but you can read about mine. It was just proposed in Congress. Okay, well, the I Green just proposed mine, so you can start with mine and I then compare. I did read yours. Okay, do you think yeah. it matches up? I don't. Okay, well then I, I guess the answer is no. I don't think it's bold or comprehensive enough to deal with the crisis we face for our climate. Okay, I guess we don't agree. Thanks for coming. I guess we don't. So Pete Buttigieg is uh, garbage and. You're not going to win without getting out that youth vote. You're not going to win without black people behind you who are the most loyal constituency the Democratic Party has. Period. End of story. But the reason why Pete Buttigieg thinks he has a chance is because he has the most billionaire donors. There hasn't been a single candidate with as many billionaire donors as Pete Buttigieg, and he has done a number of fundraisers in the Hamptons with elites. So celebrities and billionaires love him. But if you don't have young people and black people behind you, you're not going to win. You will lose to Donald Trump, Pete Buttigieg. And no amount of cringeworthy, high hopes dancing is going to get young people excited about you if you don't deliver on the policy substance. So Pete Buttigieg more and more is shifting to the right throughout the course of this primary after previously running as a progressive at the start. And this really isn't too surprising when you learn about his history, because there was recently a video that was uncovered of him praising the racist Tea Party movement because they were suddenly concerned about the quote-unquote direction the country was headed in once we elected a black president. I have to admit as a Democrat that many of my friends and supporters uh, looked at me as if I was absolutely nuts when I suggested that uh, I would be coming tonight to speak with a group that's often identified with the Tea Party. Uh, there are some, especially in my party, the Tea Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Republican Party. 
but there are many others who believe that the Tea Party is motivated by real concerns about the direction of our government and the responsiveness of our government to citizens, and above all, a frustration with business as usual. So Pete Buttigieg is someone that we all should be concerned with, not just because, you know, we wouldn't get a Bernie Sanders presidency, but because if we got a Pete Buttigieg Democratic Party nominee, Trump's going to win. I mean, it, that's obvious. That should be easy for everyone to see. Trump is going to win if he's the nominee. You don't have to believe me, but um, progressives very early on were talking about the viability and electability of someone like Hillary Clinton, who was a centrist. Now, I still thought that she was going to win against Donald Trump because Donald Trump was that incompetent, but I underestimated just how desperate people were and how demoralized some people were who didn't want to come out to vote, even if it meant defeating a fascist like Donald Trump. Pete Buttigieg is not going to win. And the worst part about Pete Buttigieg is that even if we managed to successfully defeat him in 2020... Uh, during the Democratic Party primary, that is, if he loses, he's going to be back every four to eight years, and the mainstream media will continue to push him down our throats because he's a young person who they desperately want to be the first gay president. The New York Times was already coining him the first gay president, possibly, back in 2016, before we even knew who he was nationally, before he even ran to be the DNC chairman. So this is someone who is going to be an influence on the Democratic Party for years to come, potentially, and he's a negative influence, and he's not looking out for anyone. He's looking out for himself. So this surge is something that really should concern everyone who wants to see change, who want to beat Donald Trump. Like, if we care about electability, then choosing a neoliberal elitist as a nominee is basically guaranteeing a Donald Trump victory. Now, it's going to be hard to defeat Donald Trump. I think he's beatable. I'm not going to underestimate him like I did back in 2016. But um, we need to make sure that we nominate the best candidate, the most electable candidate. And the candidate who's most electable is going to be someone who goes after non-voters, people who've stayed home, people who are young, who are getting out to vote for the first time, who are excited to come out. And that person is Bernie Sanders. So people to judge, I mean... As I see him surge, I'm watching in horror because not only is he bad for the Democratic Party, again, the dude's going to lose to Trump. So if you're a Pete Buttigieg supporter, think long and hard about your decision to support him because this elitist is going to get crushed by Donald Trump. And I don't want to have to say I told you so, but you should have learned the lesson that 2016 taught us. And if you still haven't learned that lesson, that electing a neoliberal centrist isn't going to uh, get people excited regardless if we're making history regardless if you know it's the first gay president that's not going to do it that's not going to excite people we need someone who's going to deliver on policy people to judge his centrism you know those days are gone we're moving on past centrism and triangulation it's precisely what will facilitate a second term for donald trump and a permanent capture of the supreme court i mean if trump appoints one or two more justices Kiss all your civil rights and civil liberties goodbye. So, um, people who are voting for Pete Buttigieg, you're playing with fire. So, I want to talk about a new scandal with regard to Mayor Pete's campaign that I'm sure will have absolutely zero impact on his electoral chances because currently he is, in fact, surging. So there's a new CNN poll out of Iowa that puts him in first place, and Real Clear Politics polling averages also now puts him in first place in Iowa, surpassing even Elizabeth Warren. Now, this 
surge is happening because this is a candidate whose campaign has been propped up by the mainstream media. He is a fabrication of corporate media who already deemed him the golden boy before he even decided to run for president. Like back in 2016, the New York Times had already written articles about him being the first gay president. And since he entered the race, CNN and MSNBC have given him non-stop praise, running segments comparing him to Obama and effectively making his surge a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the reason why I say that this is a self-fulfilling prophecy is because there's something known as the bandwagon effect, right? The media says something, they tell you that one candidate is really great and this candidate is surging and people want to back the winning horse so they just automatically start gravitating towards that candidate and they jump on the bandwagon. So when the media says that a candidate is really phenomenal and it's just like Obama and is surging, well, that can more often than not actually become a reality, which tells you something about Pete Buttigieg, that his rise is purely the product of propaganda, full stop. Look, if the media wanted to, they could push Bernie Sanders to first place within weeks. It's entirely up to them. They have that much power right? They can make a candidate like Donald Trump, for example, completely legitimate by propping him up and covering him nonstop and giving him $2 billion worth of free advertising. And then people, even if they see that negative coverage, realize, oh, well, he must be a legitimate candidate since there's such a big focus on him. And the same thing is happening with Pete Buttigieg. Now, let me tell you something about this scandal that I'm going to talk about. In the event this were a scandal that plagued Bernie Sanders' campaign, the media would be calling on him to drop out because remember back in 2015, one of the biggest stories was that Bernie Sanders was not attracting much black voters. Now, a lot of the issue was that Bernie Sanders didn't have national name recognition. And that's part of Pete's problem too. And I'll admit that Bernie Sanders should have done more back in 2015 and 2016 to reach out to black voters. But now that more people know who he is, he actually does have that support. And this is an issue that is plaguing newcomers like Pete Buttigieg, who don't really have much national name recognition and who also have a really bad track record in his hometown with black constituents. So, look, if this were a Bernie Sanders scandal, then it would be done, right? The media would be outraged. But this scandal that I'm going to tell you about has not really been talked about by the mainstream media. So this is a story from Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, who talks about how Pete Buttigieg, in an attempt to boost support among black voters in South Carolina, wanted to get black leaders to endorse his Douglas plan. And his campaign had announced recently that 400 prominent South Carolinians had endorsed his Douglas plan. Now, his senior advisor tweeted about this, and the campaign also touted the alleged 400-plus endorsements via email. And I say alleged endorsements because there's some issues with the endorsements that he put out. Uh, in other words, they're not really endorsements. So as Ryan Grimm explains, listed at the top of the press release were three prominent supporters, Columbus City Councilwoman Tamika Devine, Rehoboth Baptist Pastor, and State Representative Ivory Thigpen, and Johnny Cordero, chair of the state party's Black Caucus. The blowback came immediately. Devine, who has not endorsed the candidate yet in the presidential election, told The Intercept that she did not intend her support for the plan to be read as an endorsement of her Buttigieg's candidacy and believed 
believes the campaign was intentionally vague about the way it was presented. Clearly, from the number of calls I received about my endorsement, I think the way they put it out there wasn't clear that it wasn't an endorsement of the plan and that may have been intentionally vague. I'm political. I know how that works, she said. I do think they probably put it out there thinking people wouldn't read the fine print or wouldn't look at the details or even contact the people and say, hey, you're endorsing Mayor Pete? Thigpen, meanwhile, has endorsed Senator Bernie Sanders for president and was startled when he learned the campaign had not only attached his name to the plan, but also listed him as one of three prominent supporters atop the letter. How it was ruled out was not an accurate representation of where I stand, Thigpen told The Intercept. I didn't know about its rolling out. Somebody brought it to my attention and it was alarming to me because even though I had had conversations with the campaign, it was clear to me, or at least I thought I made it clear to them, that I was a strong Bernie Sanders supporter, actually co-chair of the state, and I was not seeking to endorse their candidate or the plan. But what I had talked about was potentially giving them a quote of support and continuing the conversation because I do think it's a very important conversation. Johnny Cordero is no longer listed publicly as a supporter. When The Intercept reached him for comment, he explained that he had never endorsed the plan, nor has he endorsed Buttigieg. Now, the reason why Cordero specifically didn't endorse the plan was because he didn't want to get on board with a plan that didn't actually consider input from black leaders. Like, you can't just construct a a plan for black America and say, hey, here's my black agenda, if you didn't even get input from black leaders and black South Carolinians. So, of course, he wouldn't want to endorse that plan. Now, the reason why Pete Buttigieg's campaign listed people who didn't endorse the plan as endorsements was because apparently they emailed them and told them via email that if they didn't want their names listed, they'd have to opt out. Yeah, that's literally their excuse here. I mean, that doesn't work. If you want to list them as endorsements, you need their consent. Like, if I play a copyrighted song, for example, um, Pete Buttigieg's dumbass High Hope song, and I just said, well, look, I emailed the uh, publisher of this song, and I said I'm just going to take their lack of a response and not opting out of my use of this song as consent to use the song, well, I would still get a copyright strike on this video for including that song in the video. So it doesn't work that way. But the fact that they're trying to play it off this way shows how disingenuous they are. The campaign just wanted to boost their plan as saying, look, all of these prominent South Carolinians support it. So if our black agenda is good and it's endorsed by 400 plus prominent black South Carolinians, then of course it's good. Now, part of the problem is that if we're going to assume that the 400 plus names on the list actually did endorse people to judge, which we shouldn't, by the way, another question is how much of these people who endorsed this were actually black. Now, the campaign didn't explicitly say that these were all black South Carolinians, but it was implied. Now, when looking at 297 of the 422 names on the list who had voter files that actually selected what their race was, 184 of them were white, meaning that 42% of Pete Buttigieg's entire 400-plus endorsement list came from white people. That means that 62% of the 297 names looked at were white. Now, if you're going to construct a plan for black America, then first of all, you need to get the input of black leaders. Second of all, you need to make sure that the people endorsing it aren't mostly white or disproportionately white. So, in other words, to simplify it, He's trying to reach out to black voters by saying, 
hey, you should support my plan because all of these white people like my black agenda. I mean, I shouldn't have to explain this to a politician, uh, a top-tier politician nonetheless, but here it goes. If you are going to construct a plan for black America, you need the input of black leaders. You cannot exclude them from that policymaking process. Their input is absolutely crucial. You can't be overly wonkish and just assume that you know what's best for them because it's not going to work that way. And furthermore, once you come up with said plan, you need to actually get the endorsements of black leaders, not a bunch of white people. I mean, again, if Bernie Sanders had done this, had been this disingenuous and deceitful, quite frankly, uh, the media would be calling on him to drop out. But since it's Pete Buttigieg, we're just going to sweep this under the rug, not even talk about it in mainstream media. And that's not all, because Ryan Grimm tweeted that Pete Buttigieg's campaign used a stock photo of a Kenyan woman for his Douglas plan. Yeah. Which Ilhan Omar responded saying, this is not okay or necessary with a facepalm emoji. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is an absolute joke, and the fact that he has managed to get back into, you know, the first place, uh, you know, one of four candidates who could very well, well win the Iowa caucus, it just shows you the dismal state of affairs in American politics, largely due to propaganda from the mainstream media. They absolutely love and adore Pete Buttigieg. They love him. So it doesn't matter what he does. They choose what to cover and what not to cover. They're the filter that determines what you get to see. So if they don't think this is a big story, if they don't think this shows how tone deaf he is in his attempt to reach out to black voters after formally insinuating that they're homophobic for not supporting him in South Carolina, well, they're just going to not talk about this. Sweep it under the rug. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Pete Buttigieg is not a serious candidate and he should be polling near the bottom because he's one of the worst in this race. But the fact that he's a top tier candidate again goes to show you that we need to reform our media apparatus in this country if we truly want real democracy. Because the options aren't being presented fairly to people. They're being duped by corporate propaganda. And the reason why they're being duped by corporate propaganda is because Pete Buttigieg is the candidate for corporate America. He has the most billionaire donors. He started changing his tune on Medicare for All once he started taking a lot of health insurance industry money and got contributions from Big Pharma. And he's made it increasingly clear to corporate America, he's their guy, and he's going to be just like Obama. Change on the outside, continuity on the inside. So Pete Buttigieg is someone who you need to educate people about, because if you know someone who just watches mainstream media, and they're in that MSNBC bubble, they may not know how awful Pete Buttigieg is. So we have to do better as progressives at educating fellow liberals in our family and let them know that this person isn't just a bad candidate but he's potentially dangerous because he is a liability in a general against donald trump and not just that he's a terrible candidate who wouldn't change anything in the event he were elected so i mean the fact that he's not already eliminated because of the police chief controversy in south bend it just goes to show you how powerful the media is if they want someone who is a failing politician whose campaign was basically on the verge of death to be rehabilitated, they could do that if they really wanted to. Donald Trump, who, let me remind you, ran as the law and order candidate, is now explicitly endorsing lawlessness. 
at least at the international level, because his administration has essentially declared that Israel is above the law, because all of the illegal settlements that they've been building and continue to build in the West Bank aren't actually illegal according to the United States, in spite of what international law says. Not so much in favor of law and order anymore, is he? Yeah. Now, as Laura Jiggs and David M. Halbfinger of the New York Times explains, the Trump administration declared on Monday that the United States does not consider Israeli settlements in the West Bank a violation of international law, reversing four decades of American policy and removing what has been an important barrier to annexation of Palestinian territory. The announcement by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was the latest political gift from the Trump administration to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has vowed in two elections this year to push for annexation of the West Bank. His chief opponent, Benny Gantz, has until Wednesday night to gather a majority in Israel's parliament or he will relinquish his chance to form a new government, raising the prospect of a third round of elections. The United States in the past has described the settlements as illegitimate, and Palestinians have demanded the land for a future state, a goal that has been backed by the United Nations, European governments, and American allies across the Middle East. But President Trump has been persistent in changing United States policy on Israel and the Palestinian territories, moves aimed at bolstering political support for Mr. Netanyahu, was failed to form a government after two rounds of elections with razor-thin outcomes. So according to Donald Trump's administration and now the U.S. government, it is our official position to view Israel's settlements that they are building and continue to build in the West Bank as perfectly legally legitimate. Doesn't matter that uh, international law and international organizations, the UN, have all condemned it. It doesn't matter. We're saying it's fine, so it's fine. Now, let me remind you that Donald Trump also moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That is a territory that is disputed. Both Israel and Palestine view Jerusalem as their capital. But Trump decided to fan the flames even further and say, you know what, fuck it. I don't actually want a two-state solution. Let's just go ahead and draw a line in the sand right here. We're with Israel. Fuck the Palestinians. That's what his stance towards this issue has been. And it's absolutely disgusting. Also, what he's trying to do here is, in the event there is a third election that's called, if Benny Gantz can't actually form a government... He's giving Netanyahu a political gift. He's allowing Netanyahu to say, look, look at all the things that I've managed to accomplish as prime minister. I got the U.S. president to not only move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as our rightful capital, but on top of that, he is going to allow us to build more settlements with no condemnation. In fact, he's saying that they're legal in spite of what international law says. The other party can't deliver that for you, but I can. That's what Donald Trump is trying to do. It's sickening. Now, what this is, is Donald Trump throwing red meat to his base in the process. Because we all know he's going to brag about him being an ally to Israel. Um... And he's going to hope that this helps him politically. Now, Bernie Sanders called it out in, I think, a phenomenal and strong way, 
saying Israeli settlements in occupied territory are illegal. This is clear from international law and multiple United Nations resolutions. Once again, Mr. Trump is isolating the United States and undermining diplomacy by pandering to his extremist base. And that's exactly it. While Democrats are worried about, you know, being accused of shifting too far to the left and trying to hold the center, Donald Trump is continuing to move to the right and pander to the extremists within his base. And in the process, he's making the world a less stable, less peaceful place. It's absolutely morally reprehensible. What Israel is doing should be condemned by everyone, and it shouldn't even be controversial. But now, the official position of the U.S. government, because of Donald Trump, is that Israel can just straight up take Palestinian land, and uh, there's nothing anyone else can say or do about it. Because on the U.N., we can uh, throw our weight around. We can stop other countries from trying to push back, because we have veto power. It's... I don't know what to say about this, but, you know, it's it's sickening. So Bernie Sanders, time and again, has consistently showed that he is the best on this particular issue. Now, when I say the best, don't confuse that for saying that he's perfect, because I've been critical of Bernie Sanders as well. In fact, I tweeted about him just last week because I wanted to persuade him to not both sides the situation, because we need to recognize that when it comes to Israel-Palestine, there is a power imbalance here, and we have to acknowledge that. Like, the onus for peace is on Israel. They can end the occupation and end this dispute once and for all. But, you know, in spite of my criticisms of Bernie Sanders, no other 2020 candidate has spoken out as forcefully against Israel. Bernie's the best on this issue because Bernie is not afraid to actually call out Israel and call Netanyahu the racist that he is. They sling around words like anti-Semitic if you criticize Israel, but nobody's willing to call out Israel for their racist apartheid state. Bernie Sanders has. Now, again, not perfect on this issue by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot better than everyone else who's running for president. And on top of that, you know, he actually is best suited to get peace in the Middle East because he is Jewish, right? Nobody can accuse him, legitimately so, of being anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel. So if peace is going to come, Bernie Sanders can potentially be an ally in facilitating peace. But we do have to push Bernie Sanders to be open to the idea of a one-state solution and acknowledge the reality of, you know, the fact that the two-state solution is probably just dead at this point. I mean, it's a nice little talking point that people like to use. It's a nice little fence-sitting position. But unless we really start talking about a one-state solution with equal rights for Palestinians, we're not serious about peace in the Middle East. That's just a fact. You know, it's a sad fact of the situation. Um, but, I mean, overall... To get back to Donald Trump, we have to vote him out because this is absolutely disgusting. No country is above the law. No country should be condoning another country's lawlessness because if you think that it's okay for Israel to violate the law, then that basically opens the door to other countries who are not our allies violating the law. Think Russia, think China, think North Korea. So if you actually believe in international law, you have to acknowledge that it is universally applicable. It applies to every single country in the world, not just some countries, sometimes for some laws. It is universal.
So if you're not going to respect that, then you're not the law and order person you said you were. So it's funny how like just three years into his presidency, he's already abandoned that facade of law and order, which we all know he talked about only because he wanted to stop immigrants from entering the country, because if you have laws, you want to follow them, but only the laws that he likes, of course. And when it comes to international laws, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't even accept their legitimacy or acknowledge that they are a thing, right? He's criticized the Geneva Convention. The man's an idiot. The man is disgusting. He has no moral core. And we have to beat him in 2020 to stop the madness, to stop the international and domestic instability that he has brought uh, with him and his uh, administration. I know that I am super late to the party with regard to this particular subject, and I'm sure that most of the excitement has already dissipated. Nonetheless, I still want to talk about this because this is a potential game changer. So as many of you know by now, Jenk Uger of TYT announced that he is in fact running for Congress to represent California's 25th congressional district. So this is what he said after he made it official. I will be running for Congress in California's 25th district. Uh, I'm going to represent those people uh, in a way that they have not seen before. Uh, I will not be a standard politician. I will fight for them. I'm gonna fight to get money out of politics and I'm gonna call it like it is. You know what campaign donations are from big corporations and lobbyists? Bribes. They're bribes when Republicans take them. They're also bribes when Democrats take them. I'm not gonna take any of that and I'm gonna fight to get you guys higher wages and to get you healthcare that your family needs. And my district at this point is literally on fire, okay? And we have got to fix all of this and a standard politician ain't gonna do it. Yeah, that is incredibly exciting. And let me just say, this could be huge. The influence that he would have in Congress, I mean, it can't be overstated. This could actually change national discourse for the better, just with him being in Congress. Because we need someone who's going to aggressively confront his colleagues to their faces, both in the Democratic Party and Republican Party, and call them out for using corporate talking points if they don't support Medicare for All. We need someone like Jenk who's not afraid to connect the dots between them and their corporate donors. Like, we need someone who's actually going to fight. And Jenk Uger, over the years, agree or disagree with him on a number of subjects. He's demonstrated that he would, in fact, be aggressive and loud in the event he were a member of Congress. And he re reiterated that in his announcement. Now, people are responding incredibly positively to this because just within that first 24 hours of his announcement, 1,200 people signed up to volunteer. And he raised almost 300 grand by day two from just 10,000 small individual donors. So I think that people realize that there is a tremendous amount of value in Jenk Uger being a member of Congress. And for him to actually run and win, I mean, can you imagine the response? The establishment would in fact loathe him. They're already backing his opponent in that district, but the establishment would hate him. The Democratic Party would hate him. He would call out Nancy Pelosi. He's been incredibly critical of her. Fox News would focus on him and, as a result, kind of turn him into this media sensation in the same way that they did with AOC. But, you know, the problem with that is Jenk Uger 
isn't really like AOC in the sense that he tends to focus on issues like money and politics that are incredibly popular. Like these are issues that are nonpartisan issues, both Republicans and Democrats. They believe that money is a corrupting influence in politics. And the way that Jen Uger kind of explains how money has corrupted the political process is brilliant, right? The way he articulates that specifically is important. And he explains how, look, if you want the Soros money out, then let's get the Coke money out too. Let's get all the billionaire money and all the money out of politics, generally speaking. So there is immense value in that. And him being in Congress would be amazing. So um, I chipped in 10 bucks because I think that we need people like him fighting for us. And, you know, it goes without saying, I don't agree with Jen Uger on everything. Him and I disagree on Russiagate. Um, I angrily tweeted at him before, admittedly, when he covered the uh, gay baker case. I thought that he was a little bit too kind to the homophobic baker because he said, well, you know, maybe this baker is just principled. He also doesn't do alcohol cakes as well as gay wedding cakes. So I've criticized him before. Um, and on top of that, I think that he does have a different philosophy than I do. He points out, correctly so, I think, that money in politics really is causing enormous political instability. But I don't actually think that money in politics is the root to all evil. I think that capitalism ultimately is the lowest common denominator. It's like a virus, and as a virus would, it corrupted the political process. It turned it into a money-making venture, and it doesn't just corrupt healthcare and education. It corrupts electoral politics as well. So the reason why money in politics is an issue is because we live in a capitalist system where we commodify everything, including politics. But I don't have to align with Jenk on every single issue. He doesn't have to be a democratic socialist to get my endorsement. I want someone who's going to fight for the same policies that I believe in. Now, I have no doubt that Jenk Uger would do just that. And that's why if he were to get elected, I would be ecstatic because this is, again, someone that we need in Congress because we need aggressive people. Um, AOC has explained that it is really difficult once you arrive in Congress because there's immense pressure to conform. Jeng Uger doesn't need to conform. He already has a job at TYT. But what would make him even more effective is no other member of Congress has a gigantic media apparatus like the Young Turks. So in the event he's pushing for a particular le legislative agenda, he can then go on the Young Turks and talk about how there are members of Congress who are not pushing for this because they're bankrolled by a specific industry. And it would be incredibly successful. And more importantly, he speaks out against leadership in a way that other people won't speak out against leadership. So you see people like Pramila Jayapal and even AOC who are very principled progressive people, but they are reluctant to criticize leadership. And I get it, right? Because you can be marginalized very easily by someone like Nancy Pelosi, who has the power to strip you of committee assignments like that if you piss her off too much. So I get it, right? You're trying to walk a fine line. You're not trying to, you know, disrupt the beehive, tap it, and, and get stung. But Jen Ugrit doesn't give a shit. And that's what we need. We need someone who doesn't have a single fuck to give, who will get in there and be a fucking wrecking ball and just get in their faces. That is what we need. And because he'd be so aggressive, I think that the media would be inclined to focus on him because he'd be great for ratings. And all around, this really could change national discourse for the better. So, you know, I think that it's really popular to shit on TYT right now on YouTube and in some progressive spheres. But the fact of the matter is, if you truly are progressive and you want to get these policies passed, you need someone who's going to be 
relentless, who's going to be an attack dog and crack skulls. That's what's lacking in the progressive movement. We need someone to bully people effectively into passing policies. And if they don't, then I want them to worry about the wrath of Jenk, you know, yelling at them and screaming at them for being corrupt if they don't vote for Medicare for all, for example. So having a Jenk Uger in Congress during a Bernie Sanders presidency, can you imagine the amount of change that we can push through in a really short span like this is what we need right now and by the way before i you know um get any controversy I i'm not endorsing bullying i'm just saying we need someone like jank to be aggressive and bully the bullies essentially get these corporate clowns to realize that there is going to be ramifications if they choose to keep being complicit as people die without health care if they are going to allow us to have zero purchasing power as millennials because they don't want to do shit with regard to student loan debt cancellation and relief so we need someone like jank and the fact that he's running is incredibly encouraging. And the response shows that there is a desire, there's a demand for this type of progressive. Someone who is going to get in your face and scream at you potentially if you don't acquiesce. It's exactly what we need. And it's exactly what the Democratic Party establishment is not going to want. Now, um, they're already backing his opponent. This is kind of an open field, I believe, that George Papadopoulos is running. Mike Cernovich is running as well, um, who is basically alt-light or alt-right. I don't know what he is, but the dude is a clown. Um, but Jenk Uger has a phenomenal chance, and I would encourage everyone who is wanting policies that are progressive to be passed to back him. Because, I mean, I've already said everything. We need someone who's going to be in your face in Congress if you're not going to serve the people. And Jenk will serve the people. So, um, yeah, I'm all for it. Jenk 2020. So a couple of weeks ago on the program, we talked about Elizabeth Warren's financing plan for Medicare for All. And I think that you all know by now that I'm not too happy with it. I think that her head tax as a means of financing Medicare for All is incredibly regressive. I think that the best way to do it is through a 7.5% payroll tax. Because if you're doing Medicare for All, then you have to do it right. You have to make sure that it's solvent. You have to make sure that we can fully fund it for generations to come. Because if it's not fully funded, then what's going to happen? Well, you're going to have to strip away benefits. There's going to be calls for privatization. And there's already going to be calls for privatization. So you have to basically construct a Medicare for All system that is fail-proof, right? It can't fail. But with Elizabeth Warren's plan... Um, I don't think that she's worried so much about creating a robust healthcare system as she is about appeasing her critics. However, I can put that criticism aside and just accept that she still was seemingly at that point in time committed to single payer. Although now she released a Medicare for All transition plan that should once and for all put to rest this notion that she's serious about Medicare for All because she's not serious about Medicare for All. Now, when I think about a transition plan for Medicare for All, I'm thinking about after it's already passed, once it's signed into law, what the implementation will look like. But what she rolls out here essentially is a roadmap as to how she's going to get Medicare for All passed. Now, she tweeted about this saying, Today, I'm sharing my plan to transition to Medicare for All in my first term. We will reverse Trump's sabotage of the ACA, lower drug prices, lower the Medicare age to 50, and create a true Medicare for All option and fully transition to Medicare for All. 
As president, I'll reverse Donald Trump's efforts to sabotage the Affordable Care Act and will protect people with pre-existing conditions. And in my first 100 days, I'll take executive and legislative action to reduce health care costs and improve coverage. First, I'll act immediately as president to lower the costs of critical drugs, including specific drugs that millions of Americans currently rely on, like insulin and EpiPens. And I'll crack down on corruption to rein in health insurers and drug companies. Next, in my first 100 days, I'll use the same process Mitch McConnell used to try and kill the ACA to bypass the filibuster and create a true Medicare for All option, more generous than one proposed by any other campaign to begin the transition to Medicare for All. This Medicare for All option will be open to everyone and includes all the healthcare benefits of Medicare for All. It will be immediately free for nearly half of all Americans, including all children under 18 and anyone with income at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. I'll also let anyone over the age of 50 join the existing Medicare program and I'll improve its benefits and reduce its costs for everyone. We will continue to move forward on healthcare throughout my term, including by investing $100 billion in new breakthrough medical research and by creating a new New Drug Development Institute at the NIH. And now, here's the kicker. By the end of my third year, I'll fight to pass legislation to complete the transition to Medicare for All. Once millions have experienced the full benefits of a Medicare for All option and compared it to the corrupt and wasteful system we have today, the people will demand it. Now, if this were just one policy proposal where you pass Medicare for All and it starts out with a public option that you can buy into and then towards the end of the third year, everyone's enrolled in Medicare for All, that would be one thing. But what she's doing is she's taking the healthcare battle and she's dividing it. She's saying, first, we are going to prioritize a public option. We're going to have a means-tested public option, Medicare for all who want it, if you will, and we're going to pass that. And once I've uh, finished fighting for that, once I spent all my political capital fighting on that, after the first midterm of my presidency, assuming I'll be able to hold on to the House and the Senate, which Obama and Trump were both not able to do, but she's going to be different, assuming she'll still have the House and Senate in her third year of her first term, well then, that's when we're going to fight for another piece of major healthcare legislation, Medicare for All, and I'm going to get all of this accomplished while not having a real grassroots movement behind me, fighting with me for this. This should tell you that she's not serious about Medicare for All. Her priorities are laid out right here. She's prioritizing a public option. And Medicare for All, she's not prioritizing that. She's willing to wait until the third year of her presidency, when she probably will lose popularity like most presidents do, and not have Congress behind her, and that's when she's going to fight for Medicare for All. So that way, when it inevitably fails, she can throw her hands up and say, well, look, I tried. She is not serious about Medicare for All. Now, the thing that irritates me, I think, the most is that actual well-meaning people, proponents of Medicare for All, like Pramila Jayapal and Adi Barkin, they're touting this as a brilliant move by Elizabeth Warren to get Medicare for All passed. But this is not Elizabeth Warren playing 40 chess. This is Elizabeth Warren communicating to you in a pseudo-wonkish, unnecessarily convoluted way that she, in fact, is not serious about Medicare for All. And what she's trying to do is appease progressives and centrists at the same time by adopting both of their plans. And really, if you think about it, she's adopting one plan. 
a public option because if you are prioritizing one plan over the other, then uh, you're not serious about the other plan, right? Because if you want Medicare for all, we all know there's no reason to disaggregate this fight, to divide up healthcare reform. You just pass Medicare for all with all the issues that we have to address climate change, campaign finance reform, student loan debt cancellation, why on earth would you choose to create another obstacle for yourself when you already know that this is going to be a massive battle? A public option will be a gigantic battle. But now she's saying, I don't want to just wage that massive battle. I want a second massive battle to deal with. I mean, look, She's not serious about Medicare for all. Now, I think that Carl Begier of Jacobin perfectly illustrated how this is actually going to play out. During the first legislative push, Republicans would argue that Warren's first bill is a radical communist government power grab doomed to dysfunction and failure, and single-payer activists would be backed into either abandoning the project or insisting that, yes, the public-private plan is actually quite reasonable and good. This would, one, split the movement along entirely predictable lines that are completely familiar to left organizers. Let's work with Democrats versus we must hold the line, to undermine the commitment and investment of activists who have reluctantly decided to support a bill that is at odds with what they think really needs to happen with healthcare in the US, three, center Warren's first plan as the reasonable compromise and the second plan as an unnecessarily radical instance of Democrats pressing their advantage, and four, exhaust everyone before picking the second fight. There is no way the fight for single pair would survive Warren's plan. It is practically tailor-made to divide, depress, marginalize, and exhaust any political will for single-payer before we've even begun the final fight. That is exactly how this will play out. Now, the crux of Warren's argument is that the reason why it's going to be easier to pass Medicare for All in year three once we already established a public option is because once people get a taste of a government-run healthcare plan, well, they're going to demand it. But what do you think is the more likely scenario? Let's assume she's successful and she passes a public option in year one. Do you think that Americans will just become complacent and want to move on to the next issue? Or do you think they'll still be energized to fight for Medicare for all? There's a lot of issues. Healthcare isn't the only thing people want her to focus on. I think that people would probably just settle for a public option and be temporarily satisfied with it and think, look, we got the public option. Let's move on to something else. We don't need to wage this Medicare for all battle right now. Although 10 years later, you know, once she fails to deliver Medicare for all after getting a public option, well, the public option will inevitably fail because it will become overburdened and underfunded. And when we start talking about healthcare reform again, centrists and Republicans will point to Elizabeth Warren's public option as proof that government-run healthcare just doesn't work. And then actually codifying Medicare for all into law will be that much more difficult to achieve. So what she's trying to do, cleverly so I think, is she's hiding the fact that she's triangulating by cloaking her plan in technocratic language. But when you remove all the fluff away, what remains is the fact that she's not prioritizing Medicare for all. She's prioritizing a public option. She's telling you, Medicare for all is not a priority for me. A public option is. Now, the real tell is what Wall Street thinks about this plan. And as Doug Henwood of Jacobin explains, Wall Street doesn't believe Elizabeth Warren is serious about Medicare for All. 
and he asks, is Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All phase and plan a shrewd, realistic, tactical move to win a public health system or a bait and switch to play to Medicare for All's popularity without actually fighting for it? Wall Street thinks it's the latter. Now, he goes on to explain how a report from Barclays analyst Stephen Valaquet views her plan as a significant change in tone, and he writes... Healthcare stocks rallied on the release of Warren's plan, meaning that Wall Street, which isn't always right but does have some skill in decoding political bullshit, sees her plan as political bullshit. Additionally, Barclays estimates a Warren-style buy-in would boost Humana's earnings per share, EPS, by 50 cents. That's not a massive windfall given current EPS of just under $19, but it is a step in the wrong direction, since companies like Humana need to be put out of business as a serious Medicare for All plan would do. So Wall Street, who has the most to lose from a single-payer system, isn't worried about Elizabeth Warren. That should tell you a lot. That should tell you everything you need to know. Because candidates who support a public option, they're doing it because they want to make sure that we can keep that uh, private insurance system intact. Which means that you don't believe that healthcare should be about the delivery of healthcare. You think that there should be a profit motive, which means that you're not serious about the decommodification of healthcare. Now, I want to share another argument. This is from Ryan Cooper of The Week, who explains how it's really important to not compromise before negotiations even begin. He writes, instead of worrying about the McKinsey mayor, Warren ought to worry more about alienating Sanders supporters and dedicated healthcare activists who have sunk enormous political capital into Medicare for all as a rallying point and have been repeatedly betrayed by the Democratic establishment. It may be necessary to accept half a loaf in the negotiation stage, but only then and only because moderates wouldn't accept accept anything better. Retreat and hesitation before a single primary election has been held signals a lack of commitment. Warren should have stuck to her guns, but she didn't. She didn't stick to her guns. But someone who is going to stick to their guns is Bernie Sanders, who tweeted this out after she released her so-called transition plan to Medicare for All. In my first week as president, we will introduce Medicare for All legislation. And there you have it. If you support Medicare for All, then you pass Medicare for All. You don't pass a public option first. You pass Medicare for All. There's no path to Medicare for All other than passing it and signing it into law. Bernie Sanders stands alone here in being the only candidate who actually wants to fully decommodify healthcare in the United States of America. So the false equivalencies between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders need to stop. He's the one candidate who is serious about Medicare for all. She can support it in her rhetoric. She can be a phenomenal ally on the debate stage when she's teaming up with Bernie Sanders to argue about single payer versus, you know, a multi-payer system with centrists. But let's be real. Elizabeth Warren is not serious about Medicare for all. And in the event she becomes president, I don't believe we are going to get Medicare for All. I would be surprised if she even fought for Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders is the only candidate who's proposing a true single-payer system that I know will fight for it. Other people are not serious about it. You can get Tulsi Gabbard's single-payer plus. I guess the plus signifies 
plus private, which means it's multiplayer, where she's basically creating a plan that sounds like a two-tiered system, which is garbage, you need to take the profit motive out, or Elizabeth Warren, who will pay you lip service and say she supports Medicare for All, but she's not going to prioritize it. I mean, look, if you truly believe in Medicare for All, if you want people to stop dying and going bankrupt, if you want a healthcare system that strips out that profit motive and gets rid of private insurance, there's one candidate who has made it crystal clear they're going to fight for it. It's Bernie Sanders. And if you're not going to prioritize that on day one, then you're going to put it on the back burner and it's not going to pass. So Elizabeth Warren is no Bernie Sanders. And I think to call Elizabeth Warren Diet Bernie Sanders, I think that's giving her too much credit as well. She's not even Diet Bernie Sanders, right? She is a fairly left-leaning uh, Democrat in the Senate comparatively, but she's nowhere near Bernie Sanders domestically and on foreign affairs. On domestic policy, she doesn't believe in 100% student loan debt cancellation. She doesn't believe in medical debt cancellation. On foreign policy, she's atrocious. It's Bernie Sanders. Rally behind Bernie Sanders if you actually want someone who will bring about structural change in this country because Elizabeth Warren isn't going to do it. And I think she's made that clear throughout the course of this primary. It's no secret that Joe Biden is out of touch. I think that even his own supporters know that he's out of touch, but they're still supporting him regardless because they think that he's more electable against Donald Trump, which is laughable. But I mean, it's no secret that he's not progressive, right? To put it uh, charitably. But I think that a lot of us underestimate how out of touch he really is. Like, he made a comment about marijuana legalization, not in 1999, not in 2010 or 2014, but in 2019. That sounds like something a politician from back then would have said. So this is what he had to say about the legalization of marijuana on a federal level. According to The Hill's Owen Doherty, speaking at a town hall in Las Vegas on Saturday, the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate said whether the U.S. should legalize cannabis on a federal level is still up for debate as far as he's concerned. The truth of the matter is there's not nearly been enough evidence that has been acquired as to whether or not it is a gateway drug, Biden said, according to Business Insider. It's a debate and I want a lot more before I legalize it nationally. I want to make sure we know a lot more about the science behind it. Biden, as he has throughout his time on the campaign trail, said he supports medical marijuana and insisted possession of the substance should not be a crime. But he also said Saturday that he thinks the decision to legalize marijuana should be left up to individual states. Again, I want to remind you, he said this recently. Like, this sounds like a quote from a Democrat or Republican like half a decade ago. This is just downright embarrassing to still suggest that cannabis is a gateway drug. At this point, with the amount of evidence we have, I don't think it's unkind for me to call you an idiot. I think it's just accurate. This is a very stupid thing to say. Marijuana is not a gateway drug. Marijuana is not addictive. Marijuana has not killed anybody. Alcohol has, on the other hand, uh, we still keep that legal. I mean, how long is it going to take until people realize that prohibition does not work? Prohibition never works. That's why we made alcohol legal. 
Um, it's why marijuana legalization in the states that it has uh, happened in has been incredibly successful. And being from a state that has legal weed, I can assure you, we're not going, you know, out of our way to acquire meth. Now, we're not graduating onto harder drugs. Nobody's doing that. In fact, in, I believe, Colorado, uh, marijuana use among young people has actually decreased. So there's been nothing but positive effects. And on top of that, we're raising tax revenue that we are funneling to schools and local projects. But yet, Joe Biden says, you know what, we'll just leave that up to the states. Okay, well, doesn't it not make sense that we're still locking people in jail in some states for something that is harmless? In my state, I can walk into a store and legally purchase as much pot as I want. But in other states, if you have marijuana on you, you could go to jail. That doesn't make sense. And there are going to be some states who are never going to legalize it. More conservative Republican-run states in the South who will never legalize marijuana. And this is a civil liberties issue, so why should people in the South never have what we have here in the Pacific Northwest? In fact, the whole West Coast has legal weed now. So when you say this is a states' rights issue, this is you uh, pivoting. This is you sitting on the fence because you don't actually want to take a real stand. Saying that you support medical marijuana, that's not bold. Republicans support medical marijuana. That's not a bold stance at all. Decriminalization is not bold. We need to talk about seriously legalizing marijuana in all 50 states. And the fact that you're not going to do that as president shows that you're a joke. You're offering people nothing. You are offering voters nothing to be excited about. I mean, this is an issue that would easily get at least some young people excited to vote for you. I still wouldn't be excited to vote for you. But if you were pushing this, I'd say, okay, well, it makes sense because this is an issue that has bipartisan support. I mean, you're going to get the progressives as well as the libertarians on board. Why not opt for legalization? But you're so out of touch. You don't know which way the wind is blowing on this issue, which it's blowing towards legalization. But nonetheless, not enough for you to actually be bold for once in your life. I mean, Joe Biden, it's like he figures out which side of history is the wrong side of history, and he opts for that stance rather than just doing what's right. Because he's a coward. He's a hack. This states' rights issue is incredibly, you know, annoying. I think that some issues can be states' rights issues. That's fine. But on issues like this, where it's incredibly popular, the Democratic Party and Joe Biden would be absolutely morons to not jump on board with an issue that wouldn't make them so popular. Who's against weed legalization in 2019? Support for this will only increase in 2020. So you can actually pound Trump for that, take away some libertarian votes in the event you're the nominee, which I hope you're not, and say, look, Donald Trump isn't for freedom. Donald Trump doesn't even want to legalize marijuana federally. What a joke. I thought he's in favor of freedom and liberty. I thought that Republicans say that they believe in freedom and liberty. But instead, you're just choosing to take a stance that's uh, safe and, quite frankly, idiotic. Because, of course, it's not a gateway drug. What a stupid thing to say in 2019. Like, this is just, it's perplexing at this point, like, to be that out of touch. I, like, I, I genuinely don't get it. I don't get it. Now, I think that Jules had the best response to this because she said, shit libs like Biden are a gateway drug to fascism. And that's exactly it. Because if we keep electing these neoliberal centrist Democrats who get in office and don't do jack shit for the working class, then people get more desperate, 
and subsequently become more susceptible to radicalization. And then four to eight years down the line, we get someone who's probably worse than Donald Trump. We get a President Ted Nugent or fucking President Roy Moore. Like, the radicalization, the fascism, will be something that draws more people in as they look for answers. And Republicans always try to propose answers to people's problems. It's the wrong answer. It's always scapegoating immigrants. But they're proposing answers that speak to people, that prey on their desperation and exploit it. So Democrats who are neoliberal, who aren't actually going to fundamentally change the system... They're letting you know that they're not serious about taking on these right-wing demagogues and fascism. And in a way, they inadvertently enable it. And when we're talking about true systemic change, we can't have true change. We can't have real criminal justice reform if we don't legalize marijuana. And I'm not talking about decriminalization. I'm talking about legalizing it and allowing people who have been hurt by it the most, who've, uh, communities who have been hit the hardest, black communities, to really have dibs at this new business here. Because, you know, legal weed is going to be a very, very large industry. It's already a multi-billion dollar industry. So for you to just not get on board and fearmonger about it being a gateway drug in 2019, it just shows to me that Joe Biden, if he were to go up against Donald Trump, it's going to be a bloodbath. And not in his favor. He's going to get crushed by Donald Trump. So, I mean, what else do you say about this? In 2019, Joe Biden is still claiming that marijuana is a gateway drug. What a dumbass. I really couldn't care less about the Chick-fil-A story. When I first found out about Chick-fil-A's donations to anti-gay organizations, I had never heard of it because I think it's a restaurant chain that's more popular in the South and I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So I've never had Chick-fil-A. Um, I don't have one near me, so I probably will never have Chick-fil-A, and quite frankly, I don't care. Um, however, I'm not going to miss this opportunity to point out the irony of the situation, because uh, there's a lot of people who are very outraged about something that Chick-fil-A did, and said people want to cancel Chick-fil-A. And I'm talking about, of course, conservatives who oftentimes scream the loudest about cancel culture, but now they're threatening to cancel Chick-fil-A because they actually did something good. So they decided to stop donating to anti-gay organizations. Now, the way that they did this is a little bit interesting to me because they opened up a restaurant in the UK and they got a lot of backlash from LGBTQ activists who called for boycotts and whatnot because, I mean, oftentimes being anti-gay is just not good for business. That's capitalism, right? There was no market demand for a homophobic fast food restaurant and they failed. Capitalism is a motherfucker sometimes. I'm sure that my friends on the right will respect the free market. With that being said, though, they realized that, you know, being anti-gay in 2019 isn't necessarily the best business decision, and they learned about that the hard way. So they announced that they will no longer be donating to organizations that are explicitly anti-gay. And in response, predictably, conservatives reacted by melting down and um, threatening to cancel them. So Ben Shapiro tweeted, Chick-fil-A has survived and thrived because they served everyone 
and refused to cater to the cancel culture. Now they've caved at the behest of the censorious left. This is a terrible move and just the latest indicator that the center cannot hold, a country in which we only eat at restaurants where we agree with the owner's politics when the owner's politics does not affect anything happening inside the restaurant, is a country that cannot survive as a unified entity. So let's just pause right there and acknowledge how big of a drama queen Ben Shapiro is. Like, on the left and the right, nobody is a bigger drama queen than Ben Shapiro because he is reacting to the announcement that a fast food chain will stop donating to anti-gay organizations by basically saying that the country um, can never be unified. Ben, just shut up. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say about this. Like, it must be, like, so miserable to be outraged and offended by things 24 7 i mean do you ever just take a break from being offended by everything ben i mean come on he is the quintessential example of a right-wing sjw who is just authoritarian who wants everyone to do what he wants but will say that that's what the left wants but i mean he's pissed off because they're choosing a company is choosing to not donate to an anti-gay organization um but he also says that that was basically holding the center, which the center is pro-gay now, right? We've moved on this issue so much. And um, I think that most people who are reasonable acknowledge that, yes, gay people, like everyone else, should have equal rights. There's still a lot of people like Ben Shapiro who believe that gay people are icky and inferior. But with that being said, that's not the average American. I think that most Americans have progressed in a substantial way on this issue. We're not perfect yet, right? We have a lot of work to go. But, you know, the fact that public pressure works, that's capitalism, right? If people don't want to buy your product, then that's capitalism. That's the free market sorting itself out. And, you know, Chick-fil-A is learning the hard way that times have changed. But the fact that Ben Shapiro melted down here, I mean, it, it just shows the dude is an insufferable drama queen. But I also can't forget about my friend Dave Rubin, who is uh, literally canceling Chick-fil-A because they gave into cancel culture. He tweeted, the decision makes absolutely no sense. Chick-fil-A was actually cool because it stood up to the progressive mind virus, which is cancel culture. I'm not going back to that sad, dry, pathetic Burger King chicken sandwich. No way, no how. Back to the home-cooked frying pan. In other words, Dave Rubin, <laughs> a gay man <laughs> who's a dumbass, is angry that they're not going to be donating to anti-gay organizations and they succumbed to cancel culture so to punish them he's going to cancel them high level important ideas this really is the stupidest timeline imaginable and like if dave rubin continues on this trajectory like next week he's going to come out against gay marriage and like by next year He'll renounce his homosexuality and, like, marry a woman or something like that. Like, that's the trajectory that he's on. I mean, you can only sell out so much to where you start really looking ridiculous, and he's past that point. Like, this is this is comical. Like, they're donating to people, organizations that are against people like him. He's also posted pictures of him eating at Chick-fil-A because, you know, to trigger the libs because that's edgy. I mean, do people really care about this? Like, is that really political statement that you want to make that you ate at a fast food restaurant because they donated to anti-gay organizations it's really not a statement that you want to make and it's certainly not one you want to make if you're literally gay but i mean <laughs> this is american politics in 2019 where everything is completely stupid and idiotic and dave rubin is um 
the perfect representation of modern American political politics. But he's not the only person who is uh, joining the cancel culture bandwagon against Chick-fil-A because Ali Beth Stuckey, who is getting so good at comedy that she's making lefties nervous, according to Paul Joseph Watson. But she said, really, Chick-fil-A? This is the direction you want to go? You've garnered the unconditional support of millions, not in spite of, but because of your stances, which is the sole reason you're successful. Idiocy. Bye. Oh, so you're canceling them? Wow. You know what? I think it's time that we talk about cancel culture and how it's gone too far. Ah, <laughs> uh, shut the fuck up, everyone. Shut up. Just stop. Stop. Like I They're outraged because Chick-fil-A isn't going to donate to anti-gay organizations. Like they're not changing the recipe of the chicken sandwich. Like, if you truly cared about Chick-fil-A, wouldn't you applaud this move? Because, you know, they're no longer basically telling gay people to go fuck themselves, so that would increase their business. I mean, if they have delicious delicious chicken sandwiches, as good as people say they are, then wouldn't you want them to do better and stay in business and expand? I mean, I, I don't know what to say about this. Right-wingers are clowns. They really... They have a political ideology that's so malleable that they are willing to do exactly what they accuse their political opponents of doing the minute it becomes politically expedient for them. So you can rail against cancel culture every single day and denounce SJWism, but the minute something happens that makes you feel offended, well, all of a sudden you turn into an SJW yourself. Just shut the fuck up. Stop being such a big fucking baby. They've stopped donating to anti-gay organizations. It's not like they are donating to pro-abortion organizations or like pro-left-leaning um, causes or, or whatever. They're just saying we're not going to donate to organizations that are harmful to one particular community. But yet that little, you know, symbolic move is still too much for right-wingers who are that fragile. Whatever, snowflakes. Here we are. The 12-year-old in me isn't going to let me pass this up because the world of politics and flatulence <laughs> has collided in a way that um, none of us expected. Chris, so far, the evidence is uncontradicted that the president used taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help him cheat an election. And <laughs> The clip that I just played for you, I wanted to play the off-screen version because I thought that the laughter in it was incredibly contagious. But to show you that that wasn't someone who was recording the screen who added that in, here's an actual clip of that segment in question. Taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help them cheat an election. Cheat, 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 cheat an election. And the complaint that I've heard from I want to watch it one more time. Taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help them cheat. Taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help them cheat. And the complaint that I've heard. 
quality of the humanist report has gone downhill over the years. And this kind of just is like the lowest point in the show's history. But I will say, at first, I thought that it was Chris Matthews. But now I'm pretty certain that it's Eric Swalwell who did it. Because, like, he pauses, the fart is let out, and then he continues talking. Like, if you look at the way... Yeah, like he like pushes, right? So it's him. Gotcha, bitch. It's him. He's the one who did it. Look, if he was still in the race, I might consider switching from Bernie Sanders to him just because of this. But um, <laughs> just <kidding. laughs> now, look. To be serious, there is a more substantive reason why I'm choosing to talk about this. You know, it's not just for the laughs. You know, I think that this speaks to a broader issue with the mainstream media and the state of 2020 politics. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's, there's no substantive reason to talk about this. <laughs> I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that that happened. This is such a pointless segment. Um... But I mean, like, I feel like something like this can only happen in 2019 America, right? <laughs> if it was Chris Matthews, though, although I'm pretty certain that it was Eric Swalwell, I hope that there's like a petition for him to get fired from MSNBC because of this, because that would be hilarious if cancel culture led to that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure, like I said, it's Eric Swalwell, because that little liftoff that he did there, like, you can't let out a fart that big without, like pushing it out but without there being like some type of physical movement and i think that we saw that so i'm pretty certain that it's eric swalwell although again not 100 percent sure but just like looking at his facial reaction you could see like a little bit of a smirk before it came and then after it came as well i think he's the one who's guilty um this could have propelled its campaign if he just stayed in the race a little bit longer because i think there's a lot of people who uh, would have voted for him, because in America, we love voting for assholes, and to actually literally hear one on national television, I think that would have persuaded quite a bit of voters, so, you know, I don't, I don't really know that there's much else to say about this segment. I'm not gonna lie, I am a little bit ashamed of myself for talking about this, but regardless, you know, um, yeah, this is Fartgate 2019. This will definitely be one of the most memorable moments of uh, the year, for sure, perhaps of um you know this entire political era so yeah this is where we're at the humanist report is now covering farts we'll try to do better i promise so I already know that you guys are probably sick and tired of hearing billionaires tell you that you can't have things like healthcare or education. But regardless, um, we're going to hear from Mark Cuban, who is another billionaire who is going to tell you that, you know, you can't have the nice things that people in his class have. Take a look. Mark Cuban is here. He has been a capitalist his whole life, and he actually started with nothing yeah. and became a billionaire because of hard work and just smarts. And luck. And luck. And luck. It does always luck, of yeah. course. So tell me about that. What do you think about how 2020 is shaping up and, and capitalism versus socialism? Well, I, I mean, capitalism is going to win. There's, there's no question about that. But I, look, I'm never against open discourse. That's what makes this country great, you know? Um, people being able to convey their opinions. Now, I'm not going to agree with all of them. Um, 
socialism just doesn't work. Um, Medicare for all, I, I believe healthcare is a right, but you're not going to all of a sudden create an environment. Well, let's just talk about her plan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you the, had a the, Twitter battle. Yeah, and not even with her, right? I think she just let me go, but... Um, <laughs> You know, if you look at her plan, there's just things that just have no chance of passing, you know, um, and things that just don't make sense. Like, so part of her plan says employers will take the money that we were paying for insurance and put that into the med payment for Medicare for all for their employees. Now, she had the choice of saying, let's increase payroll taxes by a certain amount, which would have been the more viable way. But we, what she chose was something called a head tax, which says for my companies, any company that has more than 50 employees, rather than paying a higher payroll tax, we're going to charge you the average of the last three years plus an inflator um, each year for each one of your employees. Now, that means that in her mind that we'll be paying $7,500 to pick a number per year per employee. Now, for somebody who's making $200,000 a year, okay, that's not bad. But what's the impact on someone who's making $10 an hour or $12 an hour or $30,000 a year? Right. If you know if you're, you have to hire somebody and the, the payroll cost is instead of 6.12% um, or whatever it is, right, you're having to pay $7,500 per year, you're going to have second thoughts. Of, slow hiring. Right, you're going to have yeah. second thoughts about sure. hiring that person. Even worse, as you evolve into her plan, you're going to see companies cut payroll benefits because they know if they push their costs down leading into the plan for the calculations, it's going to cost them less per, per employee, and that's going to create additional problems. Right. It's just not thought out. are going to hate it because uh, their Cadillac plans go up. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, for the Dallas Mavericks, it cost me, for a family of four, my, we self-insure, and my insurance costs are $29,900 per year. But I'm okay with that because our insurance is great, and it's a great premium for an employee's under Medicare for all, they're going to take a huge step back in what they get. And like to your point with unions for their Cadillac plans, you're going to have a lot of people that are very upset that Medicare for all doesn't provide the quality of care that they're used to. And that's going to create huge transitional problems. Okay. So I will admit that that clip didn't bother me as much as the clips with, you know, Bill Gates and Leon Cooperman. With that being said, whenever I hear a billionaire talk about politics, it just, it frustrates me because I don't care about billionaires and elites. Like, if you want to know how we should construct public policy, we shouldn't be talking to rich people who don't need government to sustain themselves. We should be talking to normal people who the government is supposed to serve, who actually pay taxes, mind you, and who should have the largest say in the direction of the country. But nonetheless, you know, in mainstream media, rather than actually focusing in on what normal people want... We see them bring on billionaires like Mark Cuban to pontificate about things that won't affect them and that they usually don't know anything about. So he says, capitalism is going to win. There's no question about it. But the thing about capitalism potentially winning out over socialism is that capitalism is a virus that will one day grow so big that it will consume itself and inevitably devour the entire political system which it exists in and bring down the planet with it. So for the sake of humanity, we better hope that capitalism doesn't win because capitalism is going to kill us all if it does in fact win. Now, I know that for people like Mark Cuban, of course you don't want to undo capitalism because this is the system that made you a billionaire. So, I mean, I wouldn't want to undo socialism if that system helped me. So I get it, it's self-interest, right? But for the sake of humanity's survival, we better hope that capitalism does not win. And, you know, I think that he's wrong in actuality because when you look at public opinion polls, seven out of 10 millennials 
favor socialism and they would vote to elect a socialist. So the future generation, they know that capitalism is a failure. Capitalism is a deadly system. It's just a matter of Will we be able to assume power in time before it kills us all? That's really the true question. It's a race against time. Um, he also says, I'm never against open discourse. That's what makes this company, country, great. Now, I love that Freudian slip there because that's the same exact thing that Donnie Deutsch said when he was talking about how, you know, Bernie Sanders is not what is good for this company, country, excuse me. Right, because when you elect someone like Bernie Sanders, you know that that's going to be bad for the bottom line because he's going to make you pay your fair share. He just put out a brilliant tweet about Netflix. He said that $8.99 fee that you pay to Netflix monthly is more than they've paid in taxes all year. So what Bernie Sanders is going to do is make all of these tax dodgers finally pay what they haven't been paying. So, you know, that's really important, but that's what people who are elites don't like because they've been able to hire enough lawyers to where they don't have to pay any taxes. They can get away with paying $0. Amazon paid $0 in taxes after they made billions in profits. This is a trillion dollar company. So the fact that they are paying effectively $0 in taxes should outrage everyone. So what Bernie Sanders is doing is he's going to change that and they know they don't like that. Now, Mark Cuban says socialism just doesn't work. Okay, that's not a very persuasive argument. And um, furthermore, it depends on what type of socialism we're talking about. Progressives in the U.S. oftentimes point to social democratic countries in Scandinavia. Those are working really well. Um, when it comes to Latin American countries, oftentimes when they elect a socialist government, we overthrow that government with the CIA. So we haven't even really tested democratic socialism anywhere in the world. What we're really talking about is democratizing the workplace we're talking about democratizing society we're talking about hyper democratization so it's not necessarily so much about big government so much as it is about empowering people right so i mean socialism to say that it doesn't work that doesn't really mean anything it has no value in saying it so he then moved on to medicare for all to demonstrate why socialism won't work and he proclaims healthcare to be a right, but then proceeds to argue against Medicare for all and why we can't have healthcare be a right in actuality. Now, when they refer to her Medicare for all bill, meaning Elizabeth Warren, meaning Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all bill, since he's the only candidate who actually supports Medicare for all, the reason why he's against it is because he thinks it's not politically feasible. Now, he argues that the head tax isn't the best way to fund it. No, no disagreement from me there. However, to say that it's not politically feasible, that doesn't mean anything. There's a lot of things that we previously thought were not politically feasible, right? The New Deal was not politically feasible. The Voting Rights Act, passing Social Security, these are all things that we thought were not politically feasible. Marriage equality, women securing the right to vote, freeing the slaves even. Our entire history is pretty radical right? As Americans, we've been always pushing the envelope and we haven't really gotten any big structural reform or constitutional amendments in this generation. So now I think we're on the cusp of that. People are finally waking up and realizing that we need that change. So to say that it's not politically feasible, that doesn't really mean anything. And it's an ahistorical take because you're not taking into account the times that Americans have done things that were once thought to be politically infeasible. He also talks about um how Medicare for all, according to him, 
will take a huge step back in terms of benefits. And he adds, quote, you're going to have a lot of people that are very upset that Medicare for All doesn't provide the quality of care that they're used to, meaning union members, and that's going to create huge transitional problems. So this is an outright lie. Medicare for All, for I think most Americans, will offer the best care that they have ever had. To get the level and quality of care that Medicare for All will offer, like if you were to opt for a private plan that covers that much, you'd be paying like more than $1,000 per month for one person, I'd imagine. Because it covers everything. Dental, vision, hearing aids for seniors. It is comprehensive, universal, and it's free at the point of service. So the union members who enjoy the private insurance that they have currently, first of all, I can assure you that it's going to be better than almost every single plan that unions are offering that's based in, you know, the private market. And second of all, if it's expanded to everyone, isn't that better? I mean, I, like, I just don't understand how people can say healthcare is a right, but then say, I don't support Medicare for all. I still think that it should be a commodity like shoes and video games. Like that's contradictory. You cannot say healthcare is a human right, but then go on to say, I think we should deny this human right to people unless they can afford it because it's not politically feasible. Fuck off. Like, Democrats say this too. They have co-opted the language that we use to talk about Medicare for all. Healthcare is a right. Even Tom Perez says it, the DNC chair. If you ask him what he thinks about Medicare for all, doesn't support it. All Democrats say healthcare is a right. Do they actually believe it's a right? No. Because something that is a right cannot be taken away from you. And the fact that they say it's a right but believe that you have to have money to, you know, benefit from that, right? It shows that they're full of shit, right? They're about paying lip service to the single-payer movement, which isn't going away anytime soon, mind you. So, you know, they don't have a choice. Either they acquiesce or we're going to take them out and we're going to defeat them and we will get people in power who actually will push for Medicare for all. Now, later on during that interview, the portion of the clip that I didn't show you, he talked about the wealth tax and how he's not necessarily against the wealth tax per se. It just kind of matters how it's implemented. Now, he was incredibly condescending and it was such a short portion that I didn't think it was worth playing the clip. But basically, to summarize what he was saying, and I'll link to the full thing down below if you want to watch it, was that, you know, people who support the wealth tax overall, it seems like they're a little bit naive because they don't actually have billions of dollars, you know, in cash on hand. And, you know, the wealth tax, a plan like Elizabeth Warren's, doesn't actually take into account liquidity, given that, you know, the amount that he'd owe Mark Cuban himself, based on his wealth, actually exceeds the amount of cash he has on hand. So in order to, you know, fulfill what's required under Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, he'd have to sell off portions of his worth in order to pay that wealth tax. And so the way that he talks about proponents of the wealth tax is that they're just naive and they don't really understand the wealth tax right they don't realize that people like him are going to have to literally sell off their wealth in order to comply with the wealth tax but that's the whole point the point is you have to sell off your wealth in order to pay the wealth tax until you lose so much wealth that the wealth tax no longer applies to you that's the whole point because in a capitalist system wealth equals power we can't have people having a billion dollars in net worth because that destabilizes the system. So the fact that it doesn't take into account liquidity does not matter. Sell off your assets to pay for the wealth tax and eventually you will have your wealth reduced to the point where you won't have to worry about the wealth tax. 
That's the point. Billionaires shouldn't exist. Period. End of story. And to that, he also said that people like uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are becoming incredibly Trumpian by saying statements like that. Look, I am so sick and tired of hearing from billionaires. They all need to understand that at a time when there is wealth and income inequality, they need to read the room and shut the fuck up because they're, you know, talking down in a condescending way to peasants on national television every single day. It's not helping their cause. It's only making people want to eat the rich even more. They're getting more hungry. So, I mean, I'll leave that there. I'm not sure what else to say about this. Mark Cuban, like every other billionaire, um, is incredibly out of touch. And yes, we need to take the wealth that he stole from America. Because that much wealth, I mean, I don't know how much he's well, he's worth. He's over a billion, but um, no one person should have it. Sorry. Um, if you want to live in a society, you can't have that much wealth while people are starving. That's not the way that things should operate. And just because they are that way now doesn't mean that they should be that way. So kindly shut the fuck up about politics and the wealth tax. Go away, Mark Cuban. I think that the American people are cynical about American politics, and rightfully so, because we've been betrayed time and again, right? There's always politicians that run on populism. They, you know, are idealistic, but then they get elected and they don't do anything. They become complicit and get co-opted by the establishment and they sell out. And then we never get the change that they promised. There's dozens of examples. You know, Barack Obama, of course, is the most obvious example in the last couple of decades. But, you know, we see this when it comes to Senate candidates. Tammy Duckworth ran as a progressive, sold out within the first year, and now she's one of the worst centrist Democrats. We see this, you know, when it comes to the House of Representatives. People say one thing and then they do another, and that's incredibly frustrating, and I think that it just turns a lot of people off to politics in general, which is why people just kind of tune out and they stop voting. But what AOC said in an interview with uh, Chris Hayes, it shed light on why this happens. It's because DC is a pressure cooker. And, you know, as soon as you get elected, there are tons of different voices and special interests who are exerting a lot of pressure on you to conform. They're trying to get you to sign on to their pro-corporate legislation. And there's really, you know, a lack of time when you're a member of Congress. And on top of that, there's a lack of information. So what a lot of politicians end up doing is they end up relying on lobbyists. They become dependent on lobbyists, not just in terms of their campaign contributions, but in terms of the services that they provide, in terms of, you know, getting statistical data about policies and whatnot. So, this is what happens when you get elected, right? This is why so many people sell out. And AOC explained this absolutely beautifully in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. I feel like you've been very honest about this, about the pressure to conform. Mm -hmm. That you show up in Congress and there's just pressure to conform. Mm -hmm. What does that pressure feel like? How does it manifest itself? What do you mean by that? Well, that pressure is like a vice. And there are so many different mechanisms in Congress um, that create that pressure. One, for example, is the fact that any bill and legislation that is being voted on is not really debuted to members until about 48 hours before the vote. And so sometimes these bills, they go through markup, they go through individual committees, and we all sit on different committees, so there's no way that we can all 
be at every markup at the same time. Um, but they, they move through markup. But we often don't know if a vote is coming until, and according to House rules, 48 hours ahead of time, which is an improvement upon Paul Ryan's Congress, in which it was 24 hours ahead <laughs> of time. And so we're talking about sometimes pieces of legislation that are thousands of pages long. And then you say, wait, wait this is a really big problem. That's a really big problem. And they say, well, are you on our side or not? Yeah. And there's all this like lobbyist, you know, authored provisions that are slipped inside. Sometimes we're able to catch them and take them out. We did that quite a few times in appropriations where we found a couple fossil fuel amendments. But um, but it, there's a real intense pressure to conform. Yes. Do you feel like um, that that intense pressure to conform there's also, how do you balance, like, I'm entering this institution that I ran against in some ways that I viewed as corrupt from the mm-hmm. outside. Now I'm inside it, mm-hmm. and I don't want to sell out, and I don't want to be sanded down to, to conform, mm-hmm. but also I want to learn how the place works. Absolutely. And those seem to me like those can be in impulses that are in tension with each other. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that way? Um, I think, well, they, they are naturally in tension, but that's where kind of just an individual's personality comes through. So if you just think that a person's politics defines who they are and you see every person that is on the other side of you as, a, as almost a personal enemy, that creates a huge amount of problems for you. But when you see the result of our political process and the things that come out of our Congress as the natural result of pressures on our system, then you can treat the individuals inside the, the, that system as human um, but also, it also almost, I don't like using the word civility in politics because I, I think it's a term to police how people talk. Yeah. But you're going to get dragged on Twitter now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I do think that there is an element where um, if I respect you, you know, like people know that, that my political positions when I walk in there. And what's great is that they know exactly how I feel and who I am. And so they know not to come to me with certain things. And they also it probably know saves you some conversations. It saves me a ton of time, <laughs> a ton of time. But they also, you know, they also are willing to reach out to me on unusual things, but they feel like would fit in the consistency of my values. So, I mean, that pretty much explains why so many people sell out when they get elected because you are under immense pressure to conform and it is quite literally easier to just acquiesce to the status quo and what lobbyists want because you're you know overwhelmed when you're a member of congress and that's sad right not only do you have to work on legislating and crafting public policy but most people in dc spend hours every single day on the phone fundraising constantly. Now, people like AOC don't have to do that because they rely on small grassroots donations, but most people in Congress, they don't. So they have to dedicate so much time and, you know, they spread themselves so thin that it's easier to just say, you know what, fuck it. I'll support this bill that these lobbyists want me to support because I don't have the time to dive in. So they're bad people, but it's also due to them being, you know, lazy and also under a lot of pressure. So I think that she really does a good job at explaining from a human standpoint why people sell out. It's because that's the easy thing to do. Now she says, the pressure is like a vice and there are so many mechanisms in Congress that create that pressure. 
That's exactly it. The system isn't designed, you know, to cater to the needs of you and I. We don't have lobbyists. There's no lobbyist from the pro-Medicare for all lobby. There's only lobbyists from, you know, special interests. And if you do have organizations and unions that are lobbying members of Congress, they aren't going to be able to spend as much money lobbying as the special interests, which is why, you know, you see these pro-fossil fuel amendments being slipped into appropriations bills that often get voted on and passed. And probably a lot of people in Congress don't even know what they just voted for. Because you're given a bill 24 to 48 hours before you have to vote on it, and it's a thousand pages, and you have to try to decide whether or not to support it. And before you can even really decide for yourself if it's a good bill for the American people, you have lobbyists and special interests in your ear trying to convince you to go one way or the other. I mean, the system isn't designed for good public policy making. This is why a Princeton University study showed that policy outcomes usually reflect what elites want and not what normal Americans want. We have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. Elites actually do influence how policies are crafted and the outcome of policies. And that's a problem. Money in politics isn't just the only issue. Um, it's the structure of Congress. It's the way that D.C. operates. It really is a swamp, for lack of a better word. But people who claim they want to drain the swamp don't because, again, there's a lot of work to be done. So you have to, you know, you have to delegate. You have to allow your staff to handle a lot of it. And you have to have, you know... Um, input from different organizations on particular bills oftentimes those are influences that are bad it's just it's a clusterfuck right how else do you describe that dc is a mess and this is why i would never want to be a member of congress because even if you have the intent to do good by the american people think about how difficult it is the amount of pressure that you are under and the stress not to mention the attacks that you get from you know your opponents like fox news aoc is under constant attack by them as a communist or a socialist so it's just it's not a good environment for crafting good public policy that's just the way that it is so we need to change the system we need big structural change and that's not going to happen by electing you know some type of wonky technocrat like elizabeth warren we need to redesign the system from the ground up and we do that with a movement who demands change because this much lobbyists that's not going to be conducive to a democratic country that reflects what the people want. You know, that's that's not going to be what happens. It's going to devolve into oligarchy. So, you know, yeah, I'm really glad that AOC shed light on this because I think this is this is really important. I wish that more members of Congress would speak out about this very issue there. So that way there would actually be a little bit of urgency and just talk of possibly reforming the way that DC operates. So we've been watching the impeachment proceedings play out now for multiple days, and I'll admit this is absolutely exhausting, albeit necessary, because I don't want to live in a two-tier justice system. Like, I believe that there really is no justice in the United States, and we do effectively live in a two-tier justice system already, where the rich get away with committing crimes and poor people get locked up for, um doing those same types of crimes that rich people get away with. So I think that we need to hold everyone to the same standard. And, you know, we can't give people a pass because it's politically expedient. So even if, you know, I would much rather be 
watching, you know, people debate Medicare for all on the Senate floor. Um, this is necessary. This is something that we have to do. Although I do understand the concerns of lefties who feel as if this is going to be a distraction with regard to the media and Democrats will just use this as an excuse to not focus on policy substance. I get it, right? Because Democrats by and large are incompetent. But Part of the reason why I really support impeachment is because one of my main criticisms of Democrats is that they are too weak in the face of Republican opposition. And when they're finally, like, fighting for the first time in what seems to be forever, it makes no sense for us to say, mm, actually, don't fight now when you're finally fighting. Actually, don't. Forget everything I told you. It doesn't make sense, right? And also, all the concerns that um, we were worried about, or that some people were worried about, with regard to this possibly being a distraction, I don't really think that that's played out. Um, so AOC talked about this a little bit in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, and she did a brilliant job at really debunking all of these myths about impeachment, and she explained why this is absolutely crucial if we want to live in, you know, a country where we respect the Constitution and the rule of law. Like, we don't have a choice. We have to hold elites accountable. And also the fears that everyone had about this being a distraction, that really isn't uh, bearing out in reality. So this is what she had to say. You're someone who I think... Um you came to Congress with a very strong vision and agenda. Uh, you were clear about that when you ran your primary that you won. And I think there's a, there's an interesting sort of debate about this impeachment and about the president that has to do with, you know, is this the best use of legislative time? There, you've seen some Republicans saying it's not. As someone who has an agenda that you want to pass, right, that you want to see happen, how do you view impeachment in that context? Well, I'm, I'm not very concerned about it because we're able to legislate while this is happening. Just uh, yesterday, I introduced our first piece of, of Green New Deal legislation, which was around public housing and decarbonizing our entire public housing stock in the United States. And so it's, it's not coming at the cost of legislating. Um, some may say that mass media may cover our proposals a little bit less, but they don't do a great job of that in the first place. So it's no I'm offense. Right I here. love you. I love you. But but I don't think I'm going to get like a decarbonization like right. 8 p.m. time slot. So, um, so it's OK. I think I think we're legislating. We're working for people and we're holding the president accountable and it's all possible. And if we don't hold this accountable, then we really erode rule of law in the United States of America. And really what makes America different when people say, I want to do business here. I want to, I want to write books here. I want to take my family here. I want to raise and be around American ideals. A lot of it has to do with the reliability that people, the right people will be held to account, that there are consequences for doing wrong, for hurting people, and also that this is a fair country where everyone is treated equally. But isn't that as often honored in the breach as not? I mean, one of the things that I think helps him is there's so much cynicism about that exact thing. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right, isn't it? Because there is a lot of corruption in our society. Big money and big pharma and big oil and big gas have taken over our entire political system. And there are a lot of systemic threats. But that doesn't mean that just because some things are broken, you throw out our entire country and set it on fire. Yeah. And... Um, And I, 
its core, the most sacred document in our society is the Constitution of the United States. Everything else is very easily amenable, but this is not. And once we erode the general respect for the Constitution, then we essentially erode respect for the United States of America, and that's what this president has done. So, I mean, everything she said there is incredibly important. They're still getting things done. Just yesterday, she said, uh, I introduced our first piece of Green New Deal legislation, which was around public housing and decarbonizing our entire public housing stock in the United States. Yeah, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I, I never really understood this argument, and I didn't find it persuasive that impeachment would take up so much time that it would be a distraction. First of all, Donald Trump is president and Republicans still control the Senate, so it's not like we're going to pass very many policies anyway. Not really going to happen. So to say that this is going to distract from talking about policy, not really, because the same thing is going to happen that has always been the case. I mean, progressives will continue to be policy-driven, and corporate Democrats will sit on their asses and do nothing. That's not going to change because of impeachment. So she makes a really great point about that. She also says, some say mass media will cover our proposals a little bit less, but they don't do a great job with that in the first place. Exactly. The media is never going to all of a sudden focus on policy unless there is any type of sensationalist value that they're able to, you know, extract from it, right? So they're not going to talk about Medicare for all debates on the House floor unless there's drama, there's an exchange that gets a little bit too heated between people, you know, in Congress debating it. They focus on sensationalism because sensationalism is what yields ratings and ratings is what yields profits because that attracts advertisers. So it's not going to be like, oh, well, all of a sudden they're going to start doing a bad job. They're already doing a bad job, right? So to say they're just going to be hyper-focused on, you know, uh, impeachment in the same way that they were focused on Russiagate, look, the media is going to focus on what they believe will get them ratings. And nine times out of ten, that's not what they should be talking about. The substance always gets forgotten about and swept under the rug in favor of, you know, horse race politics and political drama. That's the way that mainstream media operates. So that's not going to change because of, because of impeachment, and I don't find that argument persuasive as well. Now, finally, what I think is the most persuasive argument that she makes in defense of impeachment and in defense of the impeachment proceedings that we've been seeing is, this is about the principle. Why don't people understand that? If we don't hold this accountable, then we really erode rule of law in the United States of America. Just because things are broken doesn't mean you throw out our entire country and set it on fire. Right. Just because we let elites in the past get away with committing crimes, just because Donald Trump may get away with committing other crimes doesn't mean that we shouldn't at least try to hold him accountable for this. Now, I do absolutely sympathize with people who believe that we should broaden the scope of the impeachment inquiry. It should be focused on the emoluments clause, the, hu the hush money payments, um, and the general corruption. Like, of course, we should focus on all of that. So I don't agree with the way that Nancy Pelosi is proceeding with this. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think that the Ukraine call in and of itself is an impeachable offense, because, of course, this is an abuse of power. You can't do this. If Obama did this, he would have been impeached within two days because Republicans do not fuck around and they never take time to play nine-dimensional chess and focus on, you know, whether or not this will affect their chances. They just act impulsively. And even though sometimes that hurts them, 
Overall, they've been more effective at winning elections and getting the message out there because they never back down. So we need to make sure that we reinforce the message that Democrats have got to be strong and we actually need to applaud them when they finally listen to us and they try to hold Trump accountable. I mean, we've been pushing Nancy Pelosi for this impeachment inquiry now for more than a year and only now she's finally doing it and, you know, she could broaden the scope of it, but don't tell them to back away when they're finally trying to exert a little bit of pressure on Republicans and Donald Trump because we want them to fight. Democratic Party weakness before is what led to their defeat, right? So being strong in the face of Republican Party criticism, I think that that does matter. So, you know, all of these fears that I think lefties had, some of which are legitimate, some of which I don't disagree, I don't agree with, I think that it is important that we address them. Although, you know, what AOC said here, I think it absolutely makes sense. None of them are persuasive enough to where people on the left should be discouraging this impeachment process from taking place. I mean, it's already basically proving that Donald Trump did, in fact, abuse power. So he should be impeached for that. When presidents break the law, we should hold their feet to the fire. This should be something that isn't controversial. You know, the right is united in fighting against impeachment, so the left overall should be united in pressing for impeachment. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I don't understand why some people are against impeachment on the left. I think there are legitimate concerns. I think you can argue about the way that impeachment is being conducted. I think Kyle Kalinske makes a pretty solid argument as to why Trump should be impeached for a different reason as opposed to this Ukrainian call. But with that being said, to just be against impeachment overall, it doesn't make sense to me. As lefties, we should always push for justice and that means we um, fight against the two-tier justice system that we live in and we make sure that elites like Donald Trump don't get away with crimes that they commit brazenly so. Well, believe it or not, the November Democratic Party primary debate is already here and this time it will feature 10 candidates as opposed to 12, thank God, and being excluded this time are Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke, who of course has dropped out. Now, this debate will feature Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. So I want to kind of give you my thoughts about this debate and uh, what to look for and really what I would like to see. Now, first, because all I care about is seeing Bernie Sanders emerge victorious from this debate, um, I'm going to talk about him first because I want him to absolutely dominate this debate. And the way that he does that is by taking off the gloves. Now, he's gotten increasingly more aggressive throughout the course of the primary, but I need him to ramp everything he said up that's negative by about 150. Like, he's got to take the gloves off. And what I want Bernie Sanders to focus on is Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg is someone who I think is going to have to endure a lot of attacks at this debate, and as a result, his polling could go down because he is kind of viewed as a frontrunner, not necessarily the frontrunner, but one of four frontrunners. So he is going to have to brace himself. But Bernie Sanders has got to be the, the main aggressor here. He's got to make sure that he hits that message home, that Pete Buttigieg is a fraud. Call out the corruption. Call out his pivot away from Medicare for All once he took 
contributions from the health insurance industry. Call him out for the fraud that he is. Joe Biden, I think that Bernie Sanders has got to get, you know, a few good shots in at Joe Biden. But you don't necessarily have to focus all of your attention on Joe Biden because I think it's safe to say that he lost his lead in the early primary states. And even though nationally he's still at number one, you know, if he can't win those early primary states, I think it's safe to say that he's not going to do very well. Now, he's still polling very well in South Carolina, so you can't just, like, take the focus away from Joe Biden. That being said, I think that Bernie Sanders, if I'm him, I would make Pete Buttigieg my main focus. So, uh, Bernie Sanders can win simply by being aggressive. I think that what we've seen throughout the course of this primary is that candidates who have been aggressive at these debates have been rewarded, right? When Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden, she saw a big boost in the polls before she face-planted and was taken out by Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was incredibly aggressive towards Elizabeth Warren at that last debate, and the media rewarded him for it. Now, let's be honest here. The media is not going to reward Bernie Sanders for being aggressive. They're not going to reward candidates for being aggressive if that aggression is directed at the candidates that, you know, they like. So, for example, when Julian Castro went after Joe Biden, maybe he went a little bit too far in questioning whether or not Biden's mental faculties were there when people who are reasonable are asking that. So I'm not under this delusion that Bernie Sanders will be rewarded by the media. I think that if he were to get pretty aggressive, you know, they would come after him. But voters are going to see that as strength. Voters are going to hopefully take away what Bernie Sanders says, which is the truth about Pete Buttigieg, that he's a fraud, and that would hopefully give him a boost. Pete Buttigieg cannot win this nomination. If he does, Trump gets a second term. Um, so everyone who's in this debate needs to focus on Pete Buttigieg. Anyone who isn't, they're not serious. Now, I don't necessarily know that this surge is going to have longevity. Maybe he face plans a month later. We don't know, right? There's been kind of one candidate in the spotlight throughout the course of this primary each month ish and they face planted right the main three candidates have been bernie sanders elizabeth warren and joe biden so maybe you know pete Buttigieg's front runner status will be short-lived although regardless he's surging now you've got to attack him if i'm elizabeth warren this is kind of a difficult predicament because she kind of lost her frontrunner status after that last debate when she kind of entered that debate as the frontrunner and as a result, everyone kind of directed their anger towards her and tried to bring her down. We saw Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg kind of direct their uh, aim at her and, you know, as a result, the media took that as her not really being ready to uh, defend her frontrunner status and she kind of lost it. So, um, on top of that, she's pissing off progressives left and right, her response to the Bolivian coup, her backtrack on Medicare for all like she's proving that she's not a good candidate so if I'm Elizabeth Warren I just survived this debate right um she doesn't have to do too much because she's in a relatively solid spot I would just join Bernie Sanders in the event Bernie Sanders attacks Pete Buttigieg and just back him up be his wingman in this debate and I think that there's not much room for Elizabeth Warren to grow by attacking anyone because she's already, you know, in a pretty solid position at the top in early primary states. So attacking people like Pete Buttigieg, I think that that would be wise for Elizabeth Warren to do. Although I will say that she doesn't necessarily have to be as aggressive as Bernie Sanders because he needs to do more to, you know, move up in polling. Now, when it comes to Joe Biden, Joe Biden, he has to have a good performance. Um, I don't think he will have a good performance. He's hanging on for dear life. He lost his lead in early primary states. Um, basically, his only hope 
is that he'll win South Carolina and then get momentum after South Carolina to kind of propel him throughout the course of the rest of the primary. Now, South Carolina, it is a delegate-rich state, as uh, far as I uh, know, I believe. So, you know, that's not necessarily a bad strategy, but he cannot slip any further. Otherwise, I mean, there's no point in him even staying in to Iowa. So he just has to survive, and I don't necessarily believe that he's going to be the target since he's no longer really viewed as the front runner. He may be pulling at first uh, nationally, but I mean, what really matters is your status in early primary states. He just has to survive, and if he really targets someone like Pete Buttigieg, which I don't think he will since that is an ideological ally to him, you know, um, that could help him. If he's a little bit aggressive, that could help him. But I think that the most likely scenario is he's just going to fall asleep throughout the course of this debate. And, you know, um, we'll kind of forget that he's there unless the media props him up and makes him, you know, the, the center of attention, which I think that Pete Buttigieg will kind of be for this debate. So moving on, Tom Steyer is someone who really shouldn't participate. Again, I am against billionaires uh, being able to buy their way into these debates, so he should not be taken seriously. Uh, I don't think he was last time, but that should be the same case now, and whenever he talks, he should be made fun of. People should really dismiss him, and um, yeah, he, he shouldn't be here. So I don't want him to win, and I don't really think he can win because he's a billionaire. So when he preaches, you know, being anti-establishment, and when he speaks out against corruption, you're a billionaire. You have no street cred, and what you're saying is not landing with the American people. Now, when it comes to Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, I'm going to lump these two in together because these are people who have large online followings. And basically, what they need to do is one of two things, if not both. One, they need to each have at least one good moment, uh, and they need this to secure a spot in the next debate, right? In hopes that maybe they can, you know, have a spark that catches fire, and they get a little bit of a boost like Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris got, but they need one moment, and it can't just be a solid moment. Like, they need to shine. It needs to be a moment that we're all talking about. On top of that, we're at a state in the race where people are going to start bowing out probably relatively soon. So they're pulling lower. So they need to attach themselves to a bigger candidate, right? Someone who they may back in the event they lose. Someone they may endorse in the event they drop out. Whether that's Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, it seems like Andrew Yang is kind of gravitating towards Joe Biden. He should attach himself to Biden. Tulsi Gabbard, she's just all over the map, ideologically speaking, so I don't know who she'd attach herself to. But attach themselves to a bigger a candidate running for purposes of this debate. Like, I'm not saying endorse them at this debate. What I'm saying is, strategically speaking, if you kind of act as the wingman or wingwoman to another candidate, that can kind of give you a little bit of a boost if you kind of ride their coattails in order to at least get you to that next debate stage. That's that's really the goal, right? It's survival here. When it comes to Andrew Yang, I believe he's already qualified for the December debate, so he's not going to have as you know big of a task here. But Tulsi Gabbard definitely needs to have at least one good moment. Um, and, you know, she has performed fairly well at the debates before, excluding the last debate. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that this is out of the question. She just needs to try to attack someone and hope that it lands. Um, when it comes to Cory Booker, I think that he needs to probably do the same thing. Now, I say that about the anti-establishment candidates, but really my advice for the other, you know, one to five percenters like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris 
is largely the same. They need to also start aligning with the bigger candidate, whether that is Elizabeth Warren, whether that is, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, which I doubt, or Joe Biden. They've got to make sure that they kind of align with someone else because, um, look, their days are short-lived. They're not doing great, right? So they need to make sure that they, one, have at least one good moment, and two, they start really... Uh, aligning with someone else at this debate to try to have a good moment, right? Everyone is trying to suck up as much air as they possibly can in the room at this debate, and that's no different for them. So basically, um, my advice for them is the same as the anti-establishment candidates like Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang. The one difference is that I will say they are probably going to have a more difficult time because there's not very much momentum for Kamala Harris or uh, Cory Booker. I think there's more momentum online and more enthusiasm for her than there is for Cory Booker. I mean, there's just no there there for him. So she's going to have an easier time than her, than him. But um, Cory Booker really is just, he's hanging on by a thread. And when it comes to uh, Amy Klobuchar, last and least, you know, I don't know what to really expect from her. The only way she's able to, uh, she's going to be able to win this debate is if the media uh, and the hosts, the moderators do what they did last time and basically just ask her a hundred different questions and prop her up as if she's a legitimate contender. That's what they did for her and Buttigieg. And unfortunately for her, Buttigieg is the one who ended up getting the most out of that. But um, she is not going to do well unless the moderators prop her up. And she doesn't necessarily have to do very well. I can't imagine she has that much funds left. Um, although she did get a boost in fundraising after that last debate. However, you know, I just, I can't really see her sticking around for much longer. She's probably hoping that she's going to be the next centrist to surge after Biden. But I mean, Buttigieg kind of filled that spot. But in the event he goes down and Biden remains at the top, she's kind of hoping to get the boost. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to expect from her because she's incredibly boring and milquetoast. So I'm not expecting much from Amy Klobuchar. Um, with that being said, of course, she needs to have a good performance, but I don't necessarily think that that will happen unless it is because she is propped up by the moderators. So with that being said, um, what I really, really, really want to see more so than anything is Bernie Sanders be aggressive. Now, I'll take anything. I'll take what I can get. He needs a performance that is so good that you really can't deny that he won that debate. And I think that his debate performances up until this point have been absolutely stellar. The problem is, you know, he's not really doing much for himself. He's not moving the needle in terms of polling. Now, yes, he has 4 million individual donations. He has more than a million people on the ground fighting for him. But in that national spotlight, you've got to demonstrate to people that you are a leader who is strong, who is assertive, who is capable of taking on Donald Trump. We all know that Bernie Sanders has it in him, but he needs to just get this, you know, idea out of his head that you can't be negative and that negativity is bad. No, you're fighting for the American people. This is a fight for, you know, the planet. So it's incumbent on you to prove why you're the real deal and why people like Pete Buttigieg are frauds. Why his ideological position is non-existent and he's influenced by the money he's taking like Bernie's got to take the gloves off that's all I can say I've been saying this after every single debate and if he doesn't start doing that then I don't think he's going to improve in the polls so he has to call them out I have no doubt in my mind that whenever he talks he's going to make excellent points but for the love of God Bernie take the fucking gloves off and hit them hard 
that's the only way you're going to really show to people that you're serious here. Um, because you are, you're going to this debate with a lot of loyal supporters who aren't going to abandon you. So we have to broaden, though, that core appeal. And you do this by being assertive and aggressive and by also really making the case about electability and driving it home, driving home the point that an establishment Democrat will lose to Donald Trump as Hillary Clinton did. Bernie Sanders needs to explain how he's the only progressive on the stage who will excite the base. He's got to do this. Like, I mean, he has to win this debate. He He's not going to be like out of it. Like, I don't want to imply that that's the case, but we need a good performance because we need a surge from Bernie Sanders. He got a little bit of a surge, but now we need to propel him into first place because we're coming down to the nitty gritty. Um, the Iowa caucus is in February. So he's got a lot of ground to make up if he wants to win. And you do that by having really solid performances at these debates. And you've got to take the gloves off in order to win because playing nice isn't going to work in 2019. Donald Trump is president. So you've got to be aggressive. You've got to be assertive. And you've got to call people out like people to judge for the frauds that they are. So that's kind of what I am expecting. That's what I think we should look out for. And yeah, either way, this is going to be pretty exciting for the first half, and then that last hour is going to be incredibly draining, and we're all going to hope that it's over. So yeah, I don't have anything else to say. We'll just watch, and then I'll uh, follow this up with my debate analysis and debate breakdown um, shortly after it airs. Well, we knocked out another debate, and I honestly don't know if the debates are in fact becoming progressively worse, objectively speaking, or if I personally am just getting increasingly frustrated and disenchanted with the process itself. And the reason why I say that is because, like, I don't know what the average non-politically savvy consumer of news media would be able to take away from these debates that would help them make a more informed decision going into 2020, because there's just little to no substance. There's not enough time for the candidates to really dive deep into these issues and actually debate issues like healthcare and foreign policy and debate solutions with regard to climate change. I mean, there's just none of that. And the moderation is just incredibly incompetent at all of these debates. This one was certainly no different. Some of the questions that they asked were absolutely insane. Like, why waste your time asking Andrew Yang what he'd say to Vladimir Putin in his first call as president? Who cares? Why ask Elizabeth Warren about a national service program? Why ask Bernie Sanders about whether or not it's appropriate for his crowds to be chanting, lock him up about Donald Trump? Who cares? How does that make me make a more informed decision while voting. Now, when it comes to Bernie Sanders, we know that they deliberately tried to tie Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump and prime people to believe that he's Trumpian because MSNBC and the Washington Post, both moderators here, they hate Bernie Sanders. In 2016, Washington Post ran 16 negative stories about Bernie Sanders within 24 hours. So we know that their agenda is crystal clear. But getting to the substance here, there was just not much to be found. And I find that incredibly frustrating. Because we need to really dive deep into these issues, you know, go through the details about healthcare and not just debate, you know, the centrist versus, you know, the progressive position actually allow Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to hash out their differences because these debates, they kind of present this false image of Elizabeth Warren basically being, you know, the uh, standard bearer for Medicare for all when that's not actually the case, right? We're asking a billionaire, Tom Steyer, a question about affordable housing. I mean, the entire process is laughable. With that being said, we're going to get into the specifics and who I think, you know, was the winner, 
who lost. I think that this, like all debates, is largely subjective. I don't necessarily believe that there was any clear winner. With that being said, let's talk numbers first. So when it comes to talk time, Elizabeth Warren got the most time to speak with 13.4 minutes, followed by Pete Buttigieg with 12.8, Joe Biden with 12.6, Bernie Sanders with 11.8, Cory Booker with 11.5, Kamala Harris with 11.5, Amy Klobuchar with 10.7, Tulsi Gabbard with 9.2, Tom Steyer with 8.3, and Andrew Yang with 6.9. And when it comes to Google search results, once again, Tulsi Gabbard did dominate in this category. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg also saw some spikes throughout the course of the debate, but there was also some interest for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. When it comes to attacks overall during the debate, we see that Tom Steyer was the most aggressive, and then we also had Amy Klobuchar taking shots at Joe Biden, Mayor Pete, and Tom Steyer. Now, they didn't include Mayor Pete here, but she did, in fact, attack him for his qualifications. Now, going back to talk time, I find it incredibly absurd that Andrew Yang, who is polling higher than people like uh, Cory Booker, polling higher than Tom Steyer and Amy Klobuchar, gets the least amount of time to speak. That is absolutely absurd. Out of all the frontrunners throughout that first half of the debate, Bernie Sanders was given almost no time. He was being completely ignored, and I'm actually surprised that he got the amount of time that he ended up getting when it was all said and done, because Bernie Sanders was also being ignored. Now, the thing about Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang and why they kind of get swept under the rug is because they are less aggressive debaters, right? They don't necessarily take as many shots at their opponents. And when you take shots, when you instigate these types of exchanges, you do get more time to speak. And I think that it is a really important debate strategy to kind of be aggressive and elbow your way into the discussion by taking shots. You know, Tom Stair was able to get more time because he invoked other candidates. So I think that, you know, if you want more time, then You've got to really speak up and you've got to be a little bit more aggressive. That would be my advice to Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang, but that's just not the way that they debate. Um, and on top of that, moderators should not be going out of their way to give Amy Klobuchar so much time to speak as if she's a frontrunner. She's polling at, what, 2% nationally? Andrew Yang is beating her. How are you not including him in the discussion more? How are you ignoring candidates for large periods of time? I mean, the way that this is moderated... It just, it doesn't make sense to me. This is why I don't believe that corporate media should be moderating these debates, because when you have a privately owned corporation moderating them, we don't know if their agendas are getting in the way. But nine times out of ten, that is in fact the case. We all have biases, right? And moderating a debate with ten different candidates would be difficult. But I mean, you've got to do better. You've got to do better. And MSNBC, CNN, The New York Times, Washington Post, they've all completely bungled these processes. Now, we're going to get to some specifics. I'll do some follow-up videos with individual segments. Um, I think that there were some really huge moments of the night that happened in that second half. So, I think that probably the most memorable moment was when Cory Booker attacked Joe Biden for his stance on marijuana legalization. That was probably the biggest moment of the night. The second biggest moment was when Tulsi Gabbard was basically the only person to take on Pete Buttigieg. When you have someone who's surging, who is largely viewed as the front runner in Iowa, I mean, 
You have to go after him. And Tulsi Gabbard, to her credit, was the only person who went after Pete Buttigieg. Kamala Harris got the opportunity handed to her on a silver platter to attack Pete Buttigieg, and she didn't do that. Now, there was another moment in the debate where Bernie Sanders talked really beautifully about foreign policy, and he talked about respecting the rights of Palestinians and how they deserve dignity. And I thought that that was also just amazing. Um, another highlight of the debate, not necessarily highlight for me, but um, was when Joe Biden called out Tom Steyer. That was kind of a surprising moment. Now, he did it in the most boring way possible because it's Joe Biden, and you can tell that he was struggling to collect his thoughts, and whenever he spoke, it looked like he was literally in pain, but nonetheless, you know, it was a pretty big moment. Another moment was when uh, Kamala Harris called out Tulsi Gabbard. So, there's a lot, and we'll get to that, but what I want to get to first is my winners and losers, and as I usually do, I'll talk through their performances one by one. Now, usually what I do is I will break these down in four different categories. Um, whoever is the winner, whoever did good but didn't necessarily win, the meh category, you know, didn't necessarily do bad but just kind of maintained, and then the losers. Now, I think that it's probably easier to divide this debate up into two categories, you know, winners and losers, because I think there were a lot of people who you could argue were winners, but I believe this is largely subjective. I think there were people who had pretty solid performances, you know, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren, but I don't know that there's one clear winner. There's a winner to me, it's Bernie Sanders, because, I mean, he's my favorite, so I have that bias, but putting that aside, I still don't know objectively who would be, you know, the best in terms of performance. In terms of losers, I do think that there are clear losers. So I'll go ahead and follow, you know, the the usual routine where I talk through those four different categories. So starting with losers, I placed three people in this category. Joe Biden, Tom Steyer, and Amy Klobuchar. Now, the reason why Joe Biden is in this category is because he lost his status as frontrunner. So he needed a big night, and I think that he knew he needed a big night. But as usual, he's an easy target and he was embarrassed. Cory Booker dunked on him and then Kamala Harris laughed at him when he forgot that she was a black senator. Uh, so, I mean, you can't have a moment like that and he seemed genuinely embarrassed and come away unscathed, right? It's going to hurt him. Um, and you can just tell he shouldn't be in this race. Like, that very first uh, statement that he got, you know, I, I don't remember if it was about impeachment or whatnot, like, he kept losing his train of thought, and it was just painful to watch. Like, he shouldn't be in the race. He's not helping himself at all in these debates. And, I like, I don't know what else to say. Joe Biden is not fit to be president. His performance here really spoke to that. Now, when it comes to Tom Steyer, Tom Steyer is someone who is a complete fraud, and Joe Biden kind of exposed him. Now, the problem with Tom Steyer is he really wants you to think that he's anti-establishment, that he's not like all the other people on stage, and he's the only one who did X. Like, anyone can say that about anything, right? You can say that you're unique in some way and criticize everyone else for not doing this unique thing that you did specifically, but he's a fraud. He's a billionaire who bought his way onto the stage, and that really is the elephant in the room whenever he opens his mouth. So you're not serious about any of these causes. Like, if you're a billionaire, do you honestly believe that the best way that you can affect change using your wealth is to run for president? 
I mean, fund some type of organization that combats climate change. I mean, what are you doing on the stage, Tom? Drop the fuck out. Like, you should not be there. See, I couldn't buy my way onto that stage if I wanted to. Mike Gravel couldn't even get on the stage when he got 65,000 individual donations. So the fact that you're on that stage because you have money to basically swarm the media markets... It's unacceptable. Um, you said nothing of value. You weren't substantive. You took shots at people, and they didn't really land. What are you doing? So, uh, Tom Sayer, an obvious loser, I think. Now, another one is Amy Klobuchar. No matter how much the moderators love her and try to prop her up, there's just no there there. Um, she doesn't have charisma. She doesn't speak about things in a way that is inspirational. I think that Hillary Clinton was probably, you know, a more inspirational candidate than Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar is so dry. She has nothing. She's milk toast. She's the definition of milk toast, I think. And on top of that, she gets away with lying and the moderators do nothing. So she talked about how um, Medicare for All, and she just, you know, kind of threw this in willy-nilly, Medicare for All would lead to people losing insurance, taking away insurance. Um, no, that's a lie. People who support Medicare for All are not taking away insurance. They are expanding it to 100% of the people. Like, that's something that the moderators need to call her out on, right? You're supposed to fact-check them in real time. And if someone is saying something that is obviously untrue, to let them get away with that is unacceptable. And to keep calling her out when she is polling at, what, 2%? It's completely unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. So nothing she says lands, and I can't see how she has much money to sustain her campaign to Iowa even. I know that it's like two and a half months away, but there's just no excitement there. People don't like Amy Klobuchar, right? If they're centrist, they're already backing Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg. It's not happening for Amy Klobuchar, and um, it just is frustrating that the moderators are trying to prop her up when nobody likes her. Okay, getting to the meh category, I placed two people here. Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. Now, I honestly, I think that all of these categories here are entirely subjective. And I say this every time, but it really is super subjective. I put Kamala Harris here because she really needed a big moment. And she squandered that, right? Whatever opportunity she had to stand out, she bungled it. She had the opportunity to take on Pete Buttigieg. And, you know, the uh, stock photo of a Kenyan woman and how the media, they haven't talked about this huge scandal. She could have called him out on that. And she didn't. She wanted to broaden the picture and just talk generally. Well, I mean, if you're aggressive, sometimes you'll be rewarded for that with a bump in the polls. She took on Joe Biden directly and she was rewarded for that. So to back away doesn't make sense. Now, on top of that, she also demonstrated weakness when she called out Tulsi Gabbard, and she called her out for, you know, going on Fox News and attacking Obama. Even if it's not policy-based, it can land with voters, because I don't feel comfortable with Tulsi Gabbard going on Fox News before and criticizing Obama for not saying radical Islamic terror. She went on Breitbart like a couple of weeks ago. Like, they're basically an outlet that caters to white supremacists. So you can call her out on that, and I think it would have landed. But she called Tulsi out, Tulsi responded, and then Kamala Harris backed down. 
that doesn't demonstrate strength. And you could have demonstrated that, you know, you've got your mojo back and you're ready to fight and you're you're ready to go head to head, head to head with Donald Trump, who will be brutal, who will be ruthless, and you back down. You were too afraid to actually take on Tulsi Gabbard here. And she basically swatted away that attack. And I think that you kind of had a valid criticism of her in that regard. So free to back down, it just shows weakness, and that's not a good look. So I'm not going to say that her, this was her worst performance. I think that in that last debate, when she was trying to press Elizabeth Warren to have Twitter ban Trump or some nonsense, that was her worst debate. That was embarrassing. She didn't embarrass herself here, but I don't think she had the performance that she needed to propel her at a time when we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Iowa is a couple months away. She just didn't turn out. So in the meh category, Pete Buttigieg, you can honestly argue that he's in the good category. And I say this not because I think he performed well. I think that he performed terribly. But he is now, as I stated earlier, perceived to be the front runner because he has taken the lead in Iowa, which could give him momentum if he does in fact win Iowa. So if you're in that newfangled position as a front runner, you should you know, basically brace yourself and be able to absorb a lot of attacks, but Pete Buttigieg wasn't really attacked. Throughout the course of the debate, people were obviously biting their tongues. They didn't want to attack Pete Buttigieg. Now, thankfully, Tulsi Gabbard was the exception, and everyone else on that stage should thank Tulsi Gabbard for doing their work for them, because, I mean, it's in everyone's best interest to take out Pete Buttigieg, but, I mean, he didn't have a great performance, he didn't say anything that I think will resonate. He didn't have a good reason as to why he's not really appealing to black voters. Um, but with that being said, if you really weren't the subject of attacks when you're the front runner, that's a pretty good day for you, regardless of your debate performance. If nobody's calling you out and you don't have to defend yourself, you know, as hard as Elizabeth Warren did in that last debate, yeah, you're not coming out too badly. So I don't know that there was enough attacks at him that will actually drive down his numbers. Now, maybe Tulsi Gabbard knocked him out in the same way that she knocked out Kamala Harris, but I don't think that her attack on Pete Buttigieg was as powerful as the attack on Kamala was. Now, it was great, and we'll get to that, but um, I just, like, he didn't have to defend himself as much. Like, each time you're the front runner, you are supposed to be bombarded with attacks. Like, your opponents want to back you in the corner after that first debate. Kamala witnessed this. In that last debate, you know, Elizabeth Warren witnessed this. People to judge, he kind of got a pass. And that's to the failure of everyone on that stage. Tulsi Gabbard, not so much, because she actually did her job on that debate stage. Now, getting to the good category. This is a really tough one. So, I'm going to place Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Cory Booker, and Elizabeth Warren in this category as well. Now, you can argue that Bernie Sanders also belongs in this category because, as I stated, I don't believe that there's a clear winner, but I'll get to why I think Bernie Sanders won. But, with that being said, I placed these people in this category because, overall, I think that they had solid performances. Um, was it enough to move the needle for them? That we'll have to find out. But Andrew Yang, I really felt like he improved his debate performance in each debate he really tends to get better like he has stepped it up you can tell that he is you know more comfortable talking about policies he kind of has broadened the scope um and he's not just talking about universal basic income he's branching out to talk about other policies and i think that that's a really good look for him uh, what he needs to do because he has that really loyal base of supporters 
he's got to find a way to broaden his appeal, right? Andrew Yang didn't really have a fair opportunity to pitch his ideas because he was largely ignored for a good portion of that debate, even though he is basically in, you know, fifth or sixth place overall, depending on the poll. Um, but I would say to Andrew Yang the same thing I'd say to Bernie. You have to be aggressive. Now, I'm just going to have to accept that some candidates are too nice. Andrew Yang and Bernie Sanders, they're too nice. So they're not going to be aggressive. But, you know, if you're not aggressive then you will be kind of ignored for portions of this debate. You've really got to try to get in there. Um, with that being said, Andrew Yang still did good. I think that this was a solid performance. Um, the only thing that I will knock him for is defending Tom Steyer. Like, don't defend a billionaire in any context ever. By definition, billionaires are pieces of shit who should not exist. Uh, so don't do that. Otherwise, Andrew Yang did a good job. Um, when it comes to Tulsi Gabbard, so throughout the first half of the debate... I, like, I was not very impressed with her performance, but she definitely picked it up towards the end. So, the thing about Tulsi Gabbard that I don't get is her performance and really who she chooses to target, like, I don't understand why she goes after Hillary Clinton's foreign policy when you have Joe Biden on the stage who basically has the same exact foreign policy as Hillary Clinton. You're not running against Hillary Clinton. You're running against Joe Biden. Now, it's well played. Like, the way that she spun this, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton attack, I think that that was a brilliant move. But it's time to move on now. You got people's attention, so now it's really time to talk about policy. You know, talk about the things that you are running on. And the thing about Tulsi Gabbard is she has the same problem that I have. She needs to learn how to cut out the fluff and be more concise. Like, for me... I just, like, I'm a chatterbox, right? So I'm always talking and talking and talking, and I really have to force myself to get to the, you know, the point that I want to make. I'm doing it right now. Um, and she has this problem, and she's got to fix it because you don't have time. So I'll give you an example. When it came to climate change, she started off her answer about climate change mitigation by talking about how, well, you know, I've talked to Republicans and Libertarians and all progressives alike. We all care about this. Yes, we know that... Lots of people care about climate change, but you just wasted a minute of your time not talking about solutions. Now, she ended strongly on that particular answer, but you have to cut out the fluff and get straight to the substance. And she does have an issue oh, just getting to policy, right? Like, she ended her closing statement by talking about um, respect and aloha. Don't. Like, that's, that's platitudes. Get to the policy. Lay out your agenda. Because if you are a candidate like Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang, to be fair, you're not going to be given that much time. So you've got to make the best impression you can possibly make. And just espousing platitudes, I mean, everyone else in the race is doing that. So people aren't really going to be able to determine who's the better candidate based on who has the nicest platitudes. Like, they're voting based on policy. And Tulsi should have laid out her agenda there. Um, with that being said, I don't want to be too hard on her because I think that her performance was good overall. Um, and this is namely because she had a really big moment. And she knows that she needs at least one to two big moments at each debate to kind of build up momentum to propel her for uh, that next debate, to get more... Uh, donations and support so she qualifies and she did that now i will say and i don't want to talk too much about this in this uh debate breakdown because i will have a separate segment on that what i would have done if i were tulsi gabbard when it comes to that pete Buttigieg judge attack is rather than just focus on him uh you know floating the idea of sending troops from the united states to mexico to combat gang and drug violence which is absurd by the way but rather than just focusing on that she should have done to pete what she did to kamala 
and lay out multiple things. It's called gish galloping. It's a debate strategy where you just kind of throw a bunch of things. You overwhelm your opponent and they can't possibly respond to everything. So since she only called him out primarily for one thing, he was able to respond and swap that away. Now, I think that she got the better of that exchange, and you can really see the fragility of Pete Buttigieg. Like, he doesn't do well under pressure, um, and he doesn't like to be criticized, right? But if she kind of threw a lot at him, um, the way that he was basically lying about endorsements he got, his record in South Bend, I think it would have been a knockout punch in the same way that she gave a knockout punch to Kamala Harris. Now, with that being said, I think that her calling out Pete Buttigieg is great. It's fantastic. But, um, you know, I think that there could have been a better way to do that, but I still think she did a good job. And why she refuses to attack Joe Biden, though, like, it, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense to me. He's your opponent, and your whole thing is regime change wars. You have someone in the race who voted for the Iraq war. You can't talk about, you know, the Bush and Hillary doctrine when you have someone on the stage who voted for the Iraq war. So I don't get the strategy. I don't get, you know, the criteria for how she chooses who to attack and who to give a pass to. But either way, you know, her performance, I think, was solid. Um, Getting to Cory Booker. Cory Booker... He irritates me a lot because he is always one of these candidates who is, you know, about I'm above the fray, right? We can't attack each other. We can't have all of this divisiveness, right? Um, and whenever he says that, I hate him. But whenever he starts actually calling out his opponents in a meaningful way, um, he does a good job. And he's got phenomenal one-liners. So when he talked about how Joe Biden didn't want to legalize marijuana and he thought when he heard Joe Biden say that, he must have been high... That was a phenomenal way to criticize Joe Biden. You know, it was memorable and probably the best moment of the night throughout the whole course of the debate. So, you know, kudos to him for that. But overall, did he do enough is the question because he's kind of on the brink of death, right? He hasn't qualified for the December debate yet. Um, so was that enough? I don't know. Um, really, who truly is going to benefit from this debate is based on who the media chooses to prop up. So if they think that Pete Buttigieg should benefit from this, they're going to declare him the winner and he's going to get a boost. If they think that Cory Booker um, should be the new winner and they start their love affair with him and move on from Pete, then Cory Booker will get a boost. Um, so I think this will be determined by the media, by and large. However, I think his performance overall, objectively speaking, as someone who does not support Cory Booker and who thinks he's fake and smarmy, I think it was solid. Now, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, I don't know what to say about Elizabeth Warren. I think that her exchange with Cory Booker about the wealth tax was solid. Um, but by and large, I feel as if she kind of faded into the background throughout the course of this debate, and she didn't say anything new that we didn't already know about her. I think she's a very good debater, and I'll be fair to her. She doesn't really need to do much because she is one of the frontrunners still, so you don't have to be super bombastic. You don't have to be aggressive and go on offense, but you do have to maintain, and I think she just, she just kind of maintained, right? We didn't hear nothing new. Um, there was no moment that was devastating for Elizabeth Warren. What does irritate me, though, is that she's kind of, um, and I alluded to this earlier, so I won't be, you know, too redundant in rehashing this, but um, she needs to not be presented as the standard bearer for Medicare for All because we know that she's not serious about it. She's backing a public option. That's her number one priority, not Medicare for All. Um, so that's irritating, but I mean, regardless, Elizabeth Warren, she maintained, and that's what she needed to do. Okay, so getting to my winner, surprise, surprise, it's Bernie Sanders. Now, 
I think that this is largely due to the fact that I just support Bernie Sanders, so that's my own bias. Like, it's difficult to escape your own subjectivity and, you know, be objective here in this instance. But let me explain to you why I believe that Bernie Sanders is the winner. He didn't deliver what I wanted. Going into this in my pre-debate analysis, I wanted aggression from Bernie Sanders because that's how you get more talk time and that's how you have, you know, the highlights that mainstream media will talk about. And we need them to stop ignoring Bernie and talk about him. However, even though I say every single time going into these debates, Bernie needs to be more aggressive, he still manages to win me over because he talks about things in such a thorough and, you know, nuanced way. And he's laying out an agenda that truly is transformative. And there were so many good moments in this debate where Bernie Sanders just he caught me off guard. So when he talked about, you know, rethinking the war on terror, that was a huge moment because the failed war on terror has created more terrorists. That would be a game changer. When he talked about Palestinians deserving equal treatment and bringing Saudi Arabia and Iran together, I mean, you have to think about the global impact that this would have. He's bringing together a largely Sunni country and a largely Shia country. He, as a Jewish American, is saying, I believe that Palestinians deserve respect. Like, you have to understand, the impact that this would have internationally would be monumental and potentially history-changing. So, I'm trying to accept the fact that Bernie is not going to give me the aggression that I want. And I don't like it, I don't agree with it, but that's just the way that he is. He doesn't have it in his nature. He's a nice person. Um, and Andrew Yang supporters can probably, you know, sympathize because Andrew Yang is also very nice um, and he doesn't want to attack people as well. But Bernie Sanders has an agenda that is so transformative, so revolutionary that when I hear him talk about the policy, he's so clear. He, you know, conveys a vision to the American people that is unlike anyone else on the stage. And even if he's not attacking them, I think he differentiates himself from the rest of the field by always cutting straight to the core of the issue. You know, when we talk about healthcare, we have to talk about taking on the health insurance industry. When we talk about, you know, climate change, we've got to talk about standing up to the fossil fuel industry. His answer on climate change, by the way, was remarkable. So that's why Bernie Sanders... I think he won this debate. Now, was he a clear winner? Was it, you know, just above and beyond everyone else? No. And I'm willing to admit that I think that I'm probably labeling him the winner because he just, I agree with him more, right? So he spoke to me and I don't necessarily believe that there was a clear winner. And I try to be fair and objective and I've declared other people winners before. But the thing about Bernie Sanders that I will say is that, you know, he, throughout the course of all of these debates, is staying the course, right? He is not trying to win by having these really big moments throughout this debate and attacking people. He's trying to win based on policy. And while I think that there is, you know, um, value in attacking your opponents during a primary, I do think that this debate strategy that he has now would be great going up against Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump is going to try to make this, you know, a, a race to the bottom, right? This will be gutter politics with whoever is the nominee going up against Donald Trump. But if you stay focused on policy substance and you're really, really substantive, then I think that that's the best strategy going up against Donald Trump. So Bernie is just, he's, you know, he's staying the course. That's, I think, the best way to put it. 
And sometimes slow and steady wins the race. I'd love to see him actually call out the corruption. Like when Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar talk about Medicare for all who wanted a public option, all of that nonsense. Like I would love to hear him ask them, how much money have you taken from the health insurance industry? Let me tell you, I have a list right here. Um, that would be such a powerful moment. So, I mean, he's a nice guy, but you can attack someone in a very polite way. You know, you can you can criticize them while not conveying aggression, if that's what he's worried about. But with that being said, there's just so much substance there that I find it hard to fault Bernie Sanders because he's given me exactly what I want when it comes to policy, the substance, the nuance, and he's doing this with a very limited amount of time, right? He's very concise. He gets straight to the point. And that's what I love about Bernie Sanders. So that's why I think he won. Could you argue and say, I think it was someone else? Yeah, I think that those five people, Yang, Gabbard, Booker, Warren, if you're a supporter of them, I think you're probably going to argue that they were the winner of this debate. But certainly what I'm not willing to negotiate on is the fact that Biden, Steyer, and Klobuchar are definite losers. But I mean, I, I looked at lists online and I try not to do that before doing these um, debate breakdown videos because I want my opinion to be unadulterated. And they were just all over the place. And this is, you know, this is something that I think we're going to continue to see because with that many candidates on the stage, it's really difficult to kind of have your moment and stand out. So candidates do what they can. And this really is about how wisely you use your time, right? And I think that Bernie Sanders always uses his time wisely and he just, he speaks truth to power. Now, he's preaching to the choir. I'm, I'm the choir, right? So everything he says you know, um, it's going to resonate with me because I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter and I believe he's the best. Um, but you can make the case that maybe debate performance-wise, he wasn't the best, but I mean, there, there wasn't, you know, many attacks lobbed against him. And, you know, that leads me to believe that maybe they're sleeping on Bernie Sanders and he could be a sleeper, right? He's still in the process of slowly but surely surging. He's gaining in the polls, right? It might not be at the speed that Pete Buttigieg is gaining, but he's gaining nonetheless while Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are going down. So, you know what? He's not aggressive, but I love him anyway. Um, so that's my breakdown. We're going to get to the specifics. And yeah, I'm curious to know what you think. I always kind of like to gauge the audience because I do believe that this really is subjective. And oftentimes I'll see comments like, Mike, what are you thinking? This person definitely lost or this person definitely won. And I really do believe that you can make that case and possibly persuade me because this really is subjective. When there's this many candidates, it's so difficult to stand out. And this is really, you know, it, it's tough. We're not really engaging in policy details in as thorough of a way as we need to be. Um, but, you know, I think that candidates, for the most part, in that top five list, you know, the Yang, Tulsi, Booker, Warren, Bernie, they made the best with the time, you know, that they were, that they were given, but Bernie Sanders, I think, stood out the most, um, so yeah, I'll leave that there. So, as usual, Bernie Sanders had a lot of phenomenal moments at the debate, um, his answer on climate change in particular was absolutely amazing, but one moment that I think was my favorite was the answer that he gave on foreign policy, because he proved to the world that he will be unlike every other candidate and he's not just a candidate that could potentially transform america but he could transform the world based on what he said here take a look may have been the first person up here to make it clear that saudi arabia not only murdered Khashoggi, but this is a brutal dictatorship 
which does everything it can to crush democracy, treats women as third-class citizens. And when we rethink our American foreign policy, what we have got to know is that Saudi Arabia is not a reliable ally. We have got to bring Iran and Saudi Arabia together in a room under American leadership and say we are sick and tired of us spending huge amounts of money and human resources because of your conflicts. And by the way, the same thing goes with Israel and the Palestinians. It is no longer good enough for us simply to be pro-Israel. I am pro-Israel. But we must treat the Palestinian people as well with the respect and dignity that they deserve. What is going on in Gaza right now where youth unemployment is 70 or 80 percent is unsustainable. So we need to be rethinking who our allies are around the world, work with the United Nations, and not continue to support brutal dictatorships. I have been critical of Bernie Sanders when it comes to Israel-Palestine, and I've credited him for improving, you know, albeit slowly and gradually over the years, but he has improved nonetheless. But when he said that right there, specifically when he said that we must treat Palestinian people as well with respect and dignity that they deserve that almost made me tear up like it gave me chills because we are at a time where we have a presidential candidate on the debate stage acknowledging the humanity of palestinians i need you to just step back and understand the gravity of this this is absolutely huge People talk about unity. People talk about bringing the country together. Bernie Sanders is talking about bringing the world together. Because think about what else he said in that answer. I want to bring Saudi Arabia and Iran together under U.S. leadership. I mean, for a Jewish American politician to say that, for him to float the idea of bringing Shias and Sunnis together, because Saudi Arabia is a Sunni-majority country and Iran is a Shia-majority country. So he's talking about bringing people together who are diametrically opposed. You know, sectarian violence in the Middle East is, it's huge, right? He's talking about trying to mend those divides. Now, maybe he's not going to be successful. That is a huge task that is going to be difficult, right? But nobody else has really said that they want to try in a serious way. Nobody else will say we should respect Palestinians or actually try to get some type of peace deal without, you know, kowtowing to Israel. Bernie Sanders is a once-in-a-lifetime candidate. That little portion of the debate really should demonstrate that he is a once-in-a-lifetime candidate. Now, with how little substance these debates usually have, especially when it comes to issues related to foreign policy, that right there was probably the most profound thing that was said about foreign policy throughout the entirety of these debates. Um, with that being said, the only thing that I would have added is I would have brought up Bolivia. I would have also said, look, I am the only candidate on this stage who is brave enough to call what happened in Bolivia a coup, because guess what? It's a coup. We can't, you know, bury our heads in the sand and act like it's something that it isn't. This is a coup, right? This is something that sets him apart from Elizabeth Warren, who had a horrible botched response to that, 
And this also sets him apart from someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who's kind of pitching herself as the foreign policy anti-regime change candidate who hasn't said anything about the coup, and it's been over a week. So Bernie Sanders is, above all, one of the best I've ever seen on foreign policy now. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think he's perfect. I think there's still area for opportunity um, for growth when it comes to um, the issue of Israel-Palestine. But another thing that he said, since we're on the subject of foreign policy, is he says we have to rethink the war on terror. I need you to understand how powerful of a statement that is, because most politicians are still in this mode of, look, we've got to track down the terrorists and we, we've got to beat them, right? Even Tulsi Gabbard a few years ago said that she's a dove on regime change war and a hawk when it comes to, you know, the war on terror or take, tracking down terrorists or whatever. But the problem with the war on terror is it's creating more terrorists, right? Because the war on terror, what that really means is we are using drones to bomb terrorists, but in actuality, what's happening? We're bombing civilians mostly, right? There's so much people who are dying who are innocent, and when that happens, if you know someone who's been affected, you become radicalized in these countries. You begin, begin to hate America, right? And that makes people want to harm America because they've been harmed by America. So we have to make sure that our war on terror isn't counterproductive, and it has been counterproductive. And for Bernie Sanders to call the war on terror out like that on a debate stage, this is truly transformative. This is truly, truly transformative. Now, I don't know what he means by that, right? That was relatively vague. But just to question the war on terror narrative in and of itself is incredibly important. If he means that he wants to do away with the Bush doctrine and actually rebuild these countries that we helped destroy, that would be absolutely something that I think would be life-changing for so many people in Iraq whose lives we crushed. So overall, I mean, what Bernie Sanders said here tonight, it really is a game changer. Like he's pushing the Overton window to the left and he's really getting everyone to think about foreign policy in a different way, in a more humane way, right? Where we're not just using our hegemony to destroy the world and destroy the planet, where we're actually thinking about a humane foreign policy that, you know, emphasizes diplomacy and, you know, uh, rebuilding uh, different countries that we've destroyed. He talks about a Marshall Plan for Latin America oftentimes. He didn't say that in, you know, the debate, but, I mean, this is someone who, if he were to be commander-in-chief, I mean, this really could change the direction of you know, the U.S. in terms of foreign policy, in terms of ending U.S. imperialism, that is so crucial, right? And he's going to take on a huge battle. The military-industrial complex isn't just going to go out without a fight. They're going to give it everything they got. They're going to opt for Trump over Bernie. But the fact that he's even saying this, the fact that he's acknowledging the human dignity of Palestinian rights, it's really remarkable, and it shouldn't be remarkable. Like, acknowledging the humanity of human beings shouldn't be this surprising, but that's where we're at in American politics, to where when someone on a national stage says we need to treat Palestinians with respect and dignity that they deserve, that really is huge. It's a game changer. And nobody else is talking about foreign policy in the way that Bernie Sanders is, because he is rooted in, you know, humanitarianism and humanism. And that's why he's the best candidate, you know, far and away. Um, so yeah, that was great. I don't have anything else to say. He said everything that I uh, 
wanted him to say, with the exception of, you know, talk about Bolivia, but what he said with regard to, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel-Palestine, phenomenal. So it seems like at each debate, Tulsi Gabbard kind of sets her sights on one particular candidate. At first, it was Kamala Harris, and she basically gave Kamala's campaign a death blow. She then tried to target Elizabeth Warren at the last debate. It didn't necessarily land, but she got in a pretty solid shot at Pete Buttigieg. Um, and I think this one's going to hurt him a little bit. Take a look. But I want to get back to Pete Buttigieg and his comment about experience. Uh, I, Pete, you'll agree that uh, the service that we both have provided to our country as veterans by itself does not qualify us to serve as commander in chief. I think the most recent example of your inexperience in national security and foreign policy came from your recent careless statement about how you as president be willing to send our troops to Mexico to fight the cartels. As Commander-in-Chief, leader of our armed forces, I bring extensive experience serving for seven years in Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee, on the Armed Services Committee, on the Homeland Security Committee, meeting with leaders of, of uh, countries around the world, working with military commanders of different commands, uh, dealing with high-level national security briefings, understanding what's necessary, the preparation that I've gotten to walk in on day one to serve as Commander-in-Chief. Congresswoman, thank so you. I've Mr. Mayor, I'll allow you to that. respond. I know that it's par for the course in Washington to take remarks out of context, but that is outlandish even by the standards of today's politics. Are, are you saying that you didn't say that? I was talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation. We've been doing security cooperation with Mexico for years with law enforcement cooperation and a military relationship that could continue to be developed with training relationships, for example. Do you seriously think anybody on this stage is proposing invading Mexico? That, that's not I'm what talking I said. About that's not what I said. Up, I'm talking about building up alliances. <laughs> and if your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. One of the foreign leaders you mentioned meeting was Bashar al-Assad. I have, in my experience, such as it is, whether you think it counts or not, since it wasn't accumulated in Washington, enough judgment that I would not have sat down with a murderous dictator like that. Congresswoman Gabbard, let me allow you to respond. Thank you. You were asked directly whether you would send our troops to Mexico to fight cartels, and your answer was yes. The fact checkers can check this out. No. But your point about judgment is absolutely correct. Our Commander-in-Chief does need to have good judgment. And what you've just pointed out is that you would lack the courage to meet with both adversaries and friends to ensure the peace and national security of our nation. I take the example of those leaders who have come before us, leaders like JFK, who met with Khrushchev, like Roosevelt, who met with Stalin, like, Donald like Trump, Reagan, who met... Like Reagan, who met and worked with Gorbachev, these issues of national security are incredibly important. I will meet with and do what is necessary to make sure that no more of our brothers and sisters in uniform are needlessly sent into harm's way fighting regime change wars that undermine our national security. I'll bring real leadership and experience to the White House. So that was certainly one of the highlights of the debate. Um, it's one of the instances of you know kind of a back and forth that really stood out to me um and i really will give tulsi gabbard credit i've been critical of her in the past but she deserves credit because if you are 
attending this debate, it behooves you to attack the person who is now largely viewed as the new frontrunner, at least in uh, Iowa, right? Because if you're a frontrunner, you have to prove that you are worthy of that position and you have to defend your frontrunner status. But for whatever reason, people didn't want to attack Pete Buttigieg. Like Kamala Harris was handed a golden opportunity to attack Pete Buttigieg for not reaching out to black voters enough and she backed away. Like there were numerous instances where Pete Buttigieg could have been attacked and people chose not to go after him. Now, Amy Klobuchar, to her credit, kind of went after him with regard to inexperience, but you know, she she didn't really target him in the way that Tulsi Gabbard did. So everyone else on the stage should really thank Tulsi Gabbard for doing their dirty work for them because they should have really focused on Pete Buttigieg. Um, so it was important to call him out because this is someone who absolutely is a fraud who needs to be called out. So I give her credit for that. That being said, do I believe this was as effective as her attack on Kamala Harris? No, I think that this is definitely going to hurt him a little bit. I don't know that it will have the same impact that her criticism of Kamala Harris had. Now, I'll tell you why that's the case. So when she criticized Kamala Harris, she threw a bunch of stuff at Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris couldn't have possibly responded to everything, every point of criticism that Tulsi brought up in that short period of time. So Kamala Harris was kind of just left flailing. She kind of tried to laugh off Tulsi's attacks. Um, and so you really want to overwhelm your opponent. And this is a strategy that people often denounce. It's it's called gish galloping, where you just kind of throw a bunch of stuff at someone, overwhelm them, make it so they can't, you know, respond. And you kind of, you wound them that way, right? Um, but in this instance, Tulsi Gabbard really centered her focus on one thing, the idiotic, you know, prospect of potentially sending U.S. troops to Mexico to combat gang and drug violence. And we started the war on drugs that led to the violence in Latin America, but that's a different story for a different day. She focused on that, and because she just focused on that one issue, I think it wasn't as powerful as it could have been, because, you know, I've been talking about Pete Buttigieg lately. His record is terrible, right? He has a plethora of scandals in South Bend that she could have also lumped in. She could have threw out, you know, the scandal with him firing the police chief, and there's basically an endless supply of content for criticizing Pete Buttigieg. Um, but she only focused on the one scandal. And as a result, he was able to respond directly and kind of defend himself. Now, overall, stepping back, I think that it's pretty apparent that Tulsi Gabbard got the better of that exchange between the both of them because once she invoked his name, he kind of got in some shots at her. But I think she did a good job at like spinning it and directing the conversation back on to him. But he wouldn't have been as equipped and prepared to defend himself had she just thrown a number of things at Pete Buttigieg. So she, um, you know, she talked about how that statement really demonstrates how he's inexperienced to lead. And then she went on to talk about her experience and how she serves on, you know, different committees and whatnot. I would have spent that time just still hammering Pete Buttigieg. Uh, with that being said, we'll, we'll focus on what was said there. So he responded by saying, actually, you took me out of context. That's not necessarily what I said. And then he said, do you seriously think anybody on this stage is for invading Mexico? Now, he tried to play this off as if, you know, she was being hyperbolic and she was misrepresenting what he said. And Tulsi Gabbard asked for a fact check. And I'm going to fact check her now. She is 100% correct. 
and I'll let you see for yourself. So this is from Brian Anderson of the Sacramento Bee, who writes, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg said at a Latino forum in Los Angeles on Sunday that he'd be willing to send U.S. troops into Mexico to combat gang and drug violence. There was a scenario where we could have security cooperation, Buttigieg said. Even so, he added the caveat, I'd only order American troops into conflict if American lives were on the line and if it was necessary to meet treaty obligations. His campaign later clarified that Buttigieg would only be open to military use as a last resort in response to Mexican cartel violence or an outside threat that endangers the country's security. So what he tried to do was make it seem as if she was accusing him of wanting to invade Mexico. Now that's preposterous and that's kind of clever on his part, but the facts are the facts. He said what he said. She called him out for it, knocked him for it, and she's right. So fact check, it's 100% true. So what did he try to do? He tried to spin this and make it about her, which is really what you want to do, right? If you're backed into a corner, you deflect, and rather than playing defense, you start playing offense. So he knocked her for, predictably, meeting with Assad. Now, this has been trotted out time and again. Whenever somebody is backed into a corner by Tulsi Gabbard, Kamala Harris was the same way. They bring up Assad. She did this after the debate. I think Tim Ryan, after the debate, when she um, got into a heated back and forth with him in that very first debate, he also knocked her for meeting with Assange, uh, not Assange, Assad. Um, and yeah, it's just at this point in time, it's just tired, right? I think that diplomacy is important, and Pete Buttigieg kind of shed light into his horrible foreign policy when she defended herself. Now, I think that she did a good job at actually spinning this and defending herself and also kind of demonstrating why he's a warmonger. So, you know, she likened her meeting with Assad for, you know, purposes of diplomacy um, to, you know, when JFK met with Khrushchev and Roosevelt met with Stalin. And then what did Pete Buttigieg say? like how Trump met with Kim, as if that's a bad thing. I dislike Donald Trump, but what would you prefer Pete Buttigieg? Because Donald Trump is either hot or cold, right? He's he's at 100% or 0%. Or would we prefer him making this half-assed attempt to, you know, work out some type of peace deal with Kim Jong-un? Look, I've said this before, Donald Trump is in over his head and he doesn't really know what he's doing. Like, he, he doesn't really have any core philosophy when it comes to diplomacy or foreign policy. So he doesn't really know what he's doing, right? He is influenced by who strokes his ego the best. He's a child. He's a man baby. So I don't think he's actually going to be capable of achieving some sort of lasting peace. But should we give him credit for at least trying? Yes. Because what Pete Buttigieg is doing is he's doing what Hillary Clinton did to Obama back in 2008 when she criticized Obama for saying he would meet with Iran without preconditions. This is part of diplomacy. And Tulsi Gabbard is right to say that it's it's okay to meet with our adversaries. Now, Tulsi Gabbard is not perfect here because while I do believe that her meeting with Assad for purposes of peace mattered, um, I don't like that she will give our allies a pass. For example, she has a relationship with Modi that makes me feel very uncomfortable because he is a fascist and he is currently escalating tensions with Pakistan by just taking over Kashmir and this could lead to nuclear war, right? These are both nuclear armed countries. 
So it goes both ways. Like you can't just agree to meet with our adversaries and then continue meeting with our allies and give them a pass. Like I also want you to use your position as commander in chief to put pressure on our allies. So pressure, you know, uh, the leader of the Philippines, for example, Robert Duterte, to stop doing all of these extrajudicial killings of his own people. Call out Myanmar for their genocide of the Rohingya. Like, use your position of power to actually fight for peace and not give our allies a pass. So, you know, I have my criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard there. With that being said, on the substance of this exchange, um, she was 100% correct. So overall, I think that she definitely got the better of this exchange. Mainstream media is probably not going to see that this way because they love people to judge um, and they, they don't like Tulsi Gabbard. So... We'll see how this plays out. We'll see how this affects people to judge in the polls. If I had to predict, this probably won't have the impact that it had, um, you, you know, when Tulsi hit Kamala Harris. But if this just like knocks him down a few pegs in and of itself, that's great. And I am wholly grateful to Tulsi for doing what nobody else really seemed to want to do on the debate stage. Like you've got to go after the front runner. Um, and Tulsi Gabbard did that. Now, do I wish she'd also direct her, you know, ire at biden yes because he also is a regime change candidate right he voted for the iraq war like the same thing that she criticizes hillary clinton for um i mean <laughs> she doesn't criticize joe biden for so i don't necessarily know the criteria that she uses to evaluate who she's going to attack you know there's certainly some type of logic to it you know based on coming to the debate and who she's going to target. Maybe just she she selects targets that she thinks she can pull voters in from. Maybe that's it, but I don't know. But overall, great job to Tulsi here. I think she did a good job in calling out Pete Buttigieg. There's area for improvement, but at the same time, what she did was uh, great. I'll, I'll take what I can get. He needs to be called out, and she did just that. So the discussion related to voter outreach to black Americans was brought up during the debate. And for whatever reason, uh, Pete Buttigieg managed to get away from this discussion relatively unscathed. Nonetheless, there was a moment where Cory Booker made an absolutely powerful point, and he hit Joe Biden in a really, really powerful way that is going to leave a bruise. So um, he hit him for not agreeing to legalize marijuana. We covered this video um, this week, and Joe Biden said in the year 2019 that he believes marijuana could be a gateway drug. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. So um, Cory Booker had basically the perfect response to it, the response that we all had when we heard the news that Joe Biden said that. And this was absolutely great. I wanted to return back to this issue of, of black voters. I, I have a lifetime of experience with black voters. I've been one since I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody on this stage should need a focus group to hear from African-American voters. Uh, black voters are pissed off and they're worried. They're pissed off because the only time our issues seem to be really paid attention to by politicians is when people are looking for their vote. And they're worried because the Democratic Party, we don't want to see people miss this opportunity and lose because we are nominating someone that doesn't, isn't trusted, doesn't have authentic connection. And so that's what's on the ballot. And issues do matter. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. He has uh, swore me into my office as a hero. This week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because, because marijuana 
country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. And so let me just, let me just say this. With more African-Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850 do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. And so these are the kind of issues that mean a lot to our community, and if we don't have somebody authentically, we lost the last election. Let me just give you this data example. We lost in, in Wisconsin because of a massive diminution, a lot of reasons, but there was a massive diminution in the African-American vote. We need to have someone that can inspire, as Kamala said, to inspire African-Americans to the polls. At so besides the fantastic line about Joe Biden possibly being high to say something like that, I mean, there was so much substance packed into that little clip that I really want to applaud Cory Booker. I've been incredibly critical of him, and I do not support him. Um, he's not in my top 10 out of all the candidates running, probably. Well, maybe, it depends. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Bernie supporter, right? Diehard Bernie person. But, I mean, you've got to give credit where credit is due. He made some solid points about the Democratic Party that needed to be heard on a national stage. He made the point that, Black voters are pissed off, rightfully so, because their issues are only paid attention to when people are looking for their vote. So once every four years, you know, there's all this discussion about black voters and what we can do to improve their lives. And then once the election is over, um, they get ignored and abandoned. And this is the most loyal constituency that the Democratic Party has. And they have used and abused black Americans for years, not delivering on public policy that would help them, right? So he's bringing up a very valid point, and Democrats need to pay attention, and they need to listen and actually improve, right? Because you can only use a constituency in this brazen of a way for so long until they abandon you. And in 2016, we started to see that this constituency, black Americans who have been loyal they're not too happy with the Democratic Party, and they're starting to just stay home. And it's not just them, right? Many voters are doing this, but this is a loyal constituency that the Democratic Party must be able to re retain. So what Cory Booker is saying here is you have to deliver on policy. You can't keep sweeping their needs under a bus. You can't keep doing this. So reaching out to them... It shouldn't just be something that you do once every four years. Like, you've got to talk to them, engage them, and actually act so i mean that was a really powerful point um on top of that i want to read a quote he said with more african americans under criminal supervision in america than all the slaves since 1815 do not roll into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children because there are people in congress right now who admit to smoking marijuana while there are people in jail for those drug crimes. On top of that, he made the point that marijuana in this country is already basically legal for privileged people, and the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. I mean, that comment deserves a standing ovation. Absolutely. And, you know, even though I have my criticisms of the Democratic Party and a lot of people running for president, the way that so many of them are talking openly about how horrible the war on drugs has been particularly to black and brown people you know bernie brought it up tulsi brought it up um cory booker brought it up andrew yang talks about it all the time 
this is a really nice change, right? You you have to talk about this. The war on drugs has been a complete failure, and you have to talk about it in these terms. This has devastated communities, right? People have lost their freedom because of a drug that people smoke all the time, that people in Congress admit to smoking jokingly, right? Uh, Bill Clinton admitted to smoking it. I believe George Bush admitted to smoking it. So we can't keep talking about this as if this is only about marijuana legalization. This is a criminal justice issue, and this is a racial justice issue. And I think that Cory Booker did a great job at really laying that out and educating Joe Biden there. Now, Joe Biden tried to respond, and he just, he made matters worse. Throughout the debate, I mean, every time he spoke, it really looked like he was in pain, right? I mean, the look on his face, he, he struggled to collect his thoughts. He lost his train of thought multiple times and would reverse course in the middle of the sentences. He just, he shouldn't be there, right? So he tried to respond and he made matters worse. Now, this isn't a direct response to marijuana legalization, but he's going to defend this idea that he isn't, you know, engaging with uh, communities of color in America and talking to black Americans. Watch what he says and watch how embarrassed he gets. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, that's is, not true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> I said the first. Thank I said the first African-American that was cringeworthy that was genuinely cringeworthy you have a black female senator right beside you on the debate stage and you forget that she's there and her reaction i thought was great she capitalized on that cory booker capitalized on it i mean what do you say to joe biden what do you say to joe biden like when you see the candidates on the debate stage what you should really be thinking about as a voter is who is going to be best equipped to take on Donald Trump, someone who will be energetic, someone who will be absolutely vicious and ruthless? Think to yourself, is Joe Biden that person? Is Joe Biden really best suited to take on Donald Trump? These debates, time and again, have demonstrated that Joe Biden absolutely is not going to be competent enough to take on Donald Trump. His debate performance is not going to suffice, right? They haven't sufficed. And imagine him going up against Donald Trump. Donald Trump is going to run circles around him. And it'll be all bullshit and nonsense. Donald Trump will espouse right-wing extremist talking points and lies. But what people look for in a president is strength, right? That is one of these factors that Americans seem to love. They really seem to be drawn to people who speak with confidence and certainty, right? When uh, Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden, she demonstrated strength. When Cory Booker went after Joe Biden here... Uh, she, he demonstrated strength. When Joe Biden tried to be strong and went after Tom Steyer, which was great, I mean, he did it in a really mealy-mouthed way that was kind of boring, like it could have been more impactful. So Joe Biden is not the candidate, and these debates should be showing people that if you want to beat Trump, this electability argument has collapsed. Joe Biden is not electable, right? Polling says otherwise right now, so you can, you can disagree with me when it comes to the polls, but Let's just trust our guts in this instance, and let's just read the writing that's on the wall. Joe Biden is going to lose to Donald Trump. Time after time, candidates are demonstrating why he's not 
fitted here. And Cory Booker did a great job at showing people why he shouldn't be the nominee. Now, um, I think his chances have um, been diminished. I don't think he's going to win. With that being said, um, we'll see what happens. But either way, phenomenal job to Cory Booker here. Um, credit where it's due. I'm not a fan of him. I don't support him. I think he's a corporatist who takes money from Big Pharma and should be ashamed of himself for that. I think he's known for, you know, grandstanding usually. However, in this instance, you can't deny that that was absolutely phenomenal. Great on the substance. Great performance. Overall, stellar job. You can be anything you want when you grow up. If you work hard, you can accomplish anything. People will like you if you just be yourself. We tell our kids these things and hope that one day they'll be true. But not everyone gets the opportunities and can avoid the barriers to be anything or anyone they want. I grew up on Long Island, below the poverty line and often without hope. And when you grow up learning that the odds are stacked against you, you realize the easy choice is to accept your situation. The hard choice is to fight. And I did. As an activist and organizer, I still do. Not just for me, but for others like me. For the people that have no voice because they've been silenced, or just never knew they could speak up and be heard. We've been told by those in charge to wait our turn or stay in our lane. Well, right now is our turn, and fighting for solutions that affect our future is absolutely in our lane. I believe everyone deserves a seat at the table, but the table itself is broken, rotted by corporate greed, the super rich, and generational politicians more concerned about their next election than our next school getting shot up. Right now, just having a seat at a broken table isn't enough. We need to build a brand new table, a table with space carved out for everyone's voice, where boldness, courage, and leadership are championed a table with fewer politicians who are out of touch with everyday people and more everyday people changing and shaping our futures, relentless in their pursuits and driven by the passion to make a difference. Our district deserves common sense solutions fought with the urgency they deserve because when we all use our voices together, we can make a difference. Our district deserves better. The status quo isn't working. The rhetoric isn't working. The thoughts and prayers definitely aren't working. If we really want change, if we really want progress, we need to fight for it together. I'm Melanie DeRigo, and I'm running for Congress in New York's third district. We're building a movement. Let's build it together. Hello everyone, I am here with Melanie Dorigo running in New York's 3rd Congressional District and she is here to talk about her progressive campaign. Melanie, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I am excited to talk to you. You're running a fantastic campaign and your slogan is Elect Better Democrats. I absolutely love that. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I, I guess it depends on who you ask. To me, it means that we really have to look within our own party because what we have discovered is that while we have certain representatives that bear the Democrat moniker, when we look at their votes and their actions, they're not really living up to what it means to be a true, uh, or what I think it means to to embody the Democratic ideals, and, and in many cases are breaking with the party. Um, and 
siding with the Republican Party right now in their votes in action. So we're calling on people to pay attention. It's really a call to action, right? To pay attention, understand who your representatives are. And if they're not representing you, well, vote them out and represent someone who does. Hence, elect better Democrats. I love that. And this really isn't about like a new type of Democrat, not to be confused with the new Democrats, which are centrist. But I mean, you know, there's often this talk of the Democrats are shifting so far to the left and they're just crazy. They're socialists. But really what this is about, if you talk to most Democrats, is just getting back to their roots, like the FDR roots of economic economic populism and making sure that we're not leaving anybody behind. So you're running against his name is Thomas Suozzi. I'm probably butchering his name. But That's okay. We can we can butcher it. <laughs> <laughs> no one needs to know his name anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was just elected in 2016. Now I'm curious, why do you think he needs to be challenged? Because if he was just elected and you're already primarying him, something is wrong there. He's clearly not it. So why do you think he's insufficient? Yeah, and, and just for a little bit of background, he he served as mayor in um, one in a town within the district for many, many, many years, and then after that, he was our uh, Nassau County, which is a county on Long Island, the Nassau County executive for uh, close to ten years, um, and then he lost. Uh, that election twice. He lost and then he tried to run again and lost again. And then a few years later, he ran for Congress. So he's been around. He's been a career politician where, you know, in my home in Long Island for, um, you know, over 25 years. And when he got to Congress, I think that there is a little bit of space, like at least, me, you know, not everyone is that way, but I give everyone the benefit of the doubt when they start out. You got to give them a little bit of space to get their footing. That's fine. Um, but what I have seen very consistently over the last four years is that my representative does not, as I said earlier, he doesn't represent me. And when you have a representative that is almost exclusively funded by corporate donations, when you start to see when they break and have a very strange vote that is really um, in direct opposition to what I believe is Democrats we stand for, and then lo and behold, there's one of his donors that benefits from it. I think that's a major problem. And that's a problem on both sides of the aisles. You know, it's not just a Democratic problem. It's definitely a Republican problem as well. And I think we need to expect more from our representatives because something has changed under a Trump administration and we're paying more attention. And I think the people want representatives to represent them. Um, beyond corporate money uh, and what, what you know one of our sort of our first encounters or our, our first sparring matches with my um, current representative is his position on immigration you know he has this incredible story of his parents immigrating here you would think someone with that kind of background would really step up and fight for immigrants uh, not him unfortunately uh, he was one of the few Democrats to break with the party and support ice uh, he went down to the border and came back and said, Customs and Border Patrol is doing a great job. We got to support these guys. We got to support ICE. We got to fund them. I went down to the border um, this past summer. I volunteered down there with a few friends. And I'll tell you, I had a very different reaction. Um, you know, and I, I had, I had, I was fortunate enough to be able to um, go to a shelter in Juarez and um, meet a lot of people who had either presented at the border and had been processed and detained and now were waiting for their asylum case. Some had told me about their journeys where they were waiting to present at the border, which would then they would get processed and detained and then get sent back. Um, and, and they just had these incredible stories, you know, and uh, I got to hold these little kids in my arms and I was heartbroken, you know, and the only thing I could do was tell them that they're not alone, that there are people fighting for them, that we love you, you know, we can, we're all here, we're all in this together. Um, and it was very moving and it was very heavy for me. And when I came back to New York, 
it kind of supercharged me and I wanted to fight for immigrant rights even harder. So it, it was really shocking to me how someone could go down and, and he had, you know, much more access than I did to the actual detention centers and how you could come back and, and support the horrors that are happening down there is, is very surprising. Um, you know, shortly after that, you know, so I didn't mention, um, my representative is the vice chair of the problem solvers caucus, which, um, I'm sure your, your, um, your, your audience knows, but I'll just give a brief overview. You know, theoretically they're a bipartisan caucus, you know, designed to reach across the aisle. And I think most of us ideologically would say, Hey, that's a great in theory, but I think under a Trump administration, if that's what you're a part of, um, one really has to question your motives and your intent. Um, so his, this particular caucus was instrumental in that, um, what I call a sham of a humanitarian aid bill that was passed uh, just before 4th of July this year. Um, and I'll just, again, give a quick overview of that. There was an initial House bill that had many protections for migrants put in it. Of course, when it got to the Senate, Mitch McConnell did his thing and he, you know, crossed out all of the protections and he increased funding for ICE. Uh, and it was a $4.5 billion bill. So taxpayers are paying this. And over half of the bill went to expanding shelters, not to humanitarian aid like representatives would have us believe. Um, and his caucus was instrumental in telling Pelosi not to negotiate for these protections to be put back in after McConnell stripped them out. They told her, we won't vote for your bill. Vote for, we're only going to vote for McConnell's bill. And why would anyone do that? I mean, it was, and I spent a long time climbing, you know, really reading, clawing through the bills and understanding what was in them. Um, and it's, to me, I, I, I just can't understand it. Turns out later on, uh, when I questioned him on it, he later admitted that he didn't even read the bill. Oh, Wow. Right. Wow. So, you know, like, I look, I, I don't pretend, like your representatives have, you know, very intense schedules. I get it. Maybe if there's a bill for a ceremonial, uh, you know, ceremonial bill, you want to name a school a certain name and you have all the details and you want to vote for it, you don't want to read the whole bill because you don't have time. Okay. A $4.5 billion bill? You don't even read it? The bar is that low. Um, and then, you know, of course, I'm, I'm obviously a woman. I have three children. And, um, you know, my representative did not speak out against Brett Kavanaugh. He has not spoken out about the abortion bans popping all over, popping up all over the country. Uh, he has long supported the Hyde Amendment, which is an amendment that adversely affects, you know, women of color, uh, women of low income, young women, and makes it nearly impossible for them to access abortion. So, you know, we can go on and on and on. But, you know, even the things that he votes um, relatively fine with, he, it's just like empty lip service. Like we, we need a representative. You, we live in a coastal community. Like we need a representative who's really fighting for a Green New Deal, not just kind of gets pushed in a corner and feels like he has to say he supports it. Build those alliances. Build those coalitions. Like no one's got time for that. You know, no one has time to wait around for these representatives to take up space only to represent themselves. Yeah. And as you describe this, like the only thing that comes to mind is this sounds like a Republican. Like, why not just switch parties at that point? Like, if you're siding with the Trump administration on something like immigration, I mean, for me, like, I just talked about a report on my show um, from AP that talked about how um, there were, what what was it, almost 70,000 migrant children detained in 2019 alone by Trump's administration. Like, yeah. this shouldn't just be left to right. This should be a human thing that we all kind of read and we have this visceral reaction to it because this is human suffering that we're causing. So for a Democrat of all people who should be, you know, the loudest in speaking out, 
It just yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, right. It, it, Particularly if you have an immigrant story, you know, in in a part of your history, your personal history. Um, right. I mean, right. like I think you know he he's very clearly shown us that um, he's all about political expediency and not about political leadership. He was one of the last Democrats to the table to support impeachment. We were pushing him really hard on that, and you know you talk about like the Republican side of it, um, you know, he, as I mentioned, he's the vice chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus. And w most of us worked really, really hard in 2018 to elect as many Democrats as we could. And, you know, winning back the House was a huge, huge achievement for us and, uh, you know, for all of us. And one of the very first things he did when he was elected, he held up Speaker Pelosi's speakership by, you remember there was that group holding the coup and what they ended up doing was changing, and this is like super wonky, but I have a feeling your audience kind of like digs the wonkiness like yeah. me. So Absolutely. I'm going to get to it in a minute. Um, you know, they, they basically negotiated this rules change that weakened Democratic power by giving the minority party uh, more of an influence. So you, if they had a certain amount of votes, they could bring a bill to the floor, which look, maybe we can talk about under a different administration, under a different president, maybe that would have been a, a decent procedural rule to change. But after we worked so, so hard, it just felt like a slap in the face. Like you negotiate a rules change to weaken the Democratic Party when this is the only check we have on an absolutely lawless president. And, and he touts that as a win. So when you say that, you know, he, he kind of should be on the other side, like, I mean, that's something the other side would definitely tout as a win. It's not something that a Democrat under the Trump administration should be touting as a win. No, and not at all. Happy to give that over. Um, yeah. So, so there, there are a lot of good reasons to, um, to challenge him, but mostly I really just believe that my district deserves a leader. We deserve a fighter and that's not him, you know, so I'm stepping up and I am building coalitions and we're building momentum and we are, we're pumped and I'm really excited about the campaign that we're running. Yeah, I love your campaign. And the way that you describe the situation is we don't just need more voices at the table. We need a new table. Like the system yeah. is rotten to the core. So explain right. kind of your broad philosophy politically and talk a little bit about yourself, because this isn't just about that Republican light Democrat who's in power. This is about someone who would bring true change to that district that I think people in New York's third would actually love and admire. Yeah, yeah. I, um, so I'm glad that you talked about the table reference. You know, I think you have, um, like, you know, Shirley Chisholm said, if there's if there's not a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And I think she was so inspirational for so many reasons. And I think a lot of women in particular started to do that. But when you get to the table, you realize that that table wasn't built for you, right? And that that's it's sort of this this um, this microcosm of our government, right? These spaces weren't built for us. It's why so many so many mothers don't run for Congress because they don't know how to navigate that with with raising children, right? Um, but we look, and and almost all of our Congress is is well, not anymore after 2016, but I think before 2016, everyone in Congress was a millionaire. Yeah, like Most half, I believe. Yeah, I think it was more. No, I think it was oh, like, really? it was, I have to check. I'm going to check and I'm going to send you the stat. But it, okay. I mean, it's astounding. It yeah. is astounding. These spaces weren't built for us. Um, so we're building a brand new table. And what that means is that we are building this movement. And it's not just me, which which is even more exciting, right? There are candidates all over the country that are stepping up with similar philosophies. And we've built uh, very strong alliances here with a lot of the progressive candidates, which is really um, exciting because we kind of help each other out and boost each other as much as we can. 
But it's really about restoring power back to the people. So we have a broken healthcare system. We all know that. Who is this healthcare system working for? This this funny, I, I chuckle, this, this idea that people like their health insurance, like nobody <laughs> likes that. Like so half the time people don't even know who their carrier is. You know, that it's not the health insurance thing. Like you may like your doctor, you may have a relationship with your doctor, but you don't like the health insurance industry. That's or the health insurance carrier. Um, so you know, I, I am a huge supporter of Medicare for all. I spent my career working, um, you know, developing health improvement programs for um, for patients, for clients, for families, for kids, and ultimately for organizations. And I, I, I saw that whole world, and I, I know what goes into it. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that healthcare costs are unsustainable. They're unsustainable for consumers. They're unsustainable for employers. And it's it's just insane that we allow. We we live in a world where we think it's okay for senior citizens to ration their insulin, where 20-year-olds are starting GoFundMe's because they can't afford their their medication or their medical procedures. That's insane. So broken system, new table. We need to build something new. And, and, I, and right now, I think that that is, um, I think it's Medicare for all. I, I, that, that to me makes sense. Um, a Green New Deal. It's a completely different new system. It's a new way of thinking. Yes, we are um, through it. We are, you know, we're essentially, you know, getting rid of our fossil fuels. We're switching to 100% renewable energy. And that is very exciting. We need to do those things to save our planet, but to focus on frontline communities. Like that isn't, we don't do that in America. We, for some reason, uh, there, there are, and this has been done since the dawn of time, there's something within certain people, um, and I'm not going to specify which party does this um, more frequently, but your, your audience can probably guess. There's something within Americans, that we're not even Americans, within people, that they want to kick people when they're down. Um, they want to invest in kicking people more so they can stay down. And I just think that is so backwards. And we need to invest in lifting people up. And that's what this campaign is about. And so whether that is figuring out ways to fund public education in ways that make sense, uh, funding you know public colleges so people can get an education, which will ultimately lead to a thriving, more innovative country for us. Um, you know, it, restoring rights, which, which shouldn't be um, something, it shouldn't be new, it shouldn't be innovative, but unfortunately under a Trump presidency where he's rolled back uh, and discriminated against so many marginalized communities. It's about creating a world of equity and equality. And it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's returning government to the people. Yeah, absolutely, which is crucial. And you talk a lot about, you know, big money in politics, the corporatization of, you know, not just uh, American politics, but the Democratic Party. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. because you are all about basically reforming the Democratic Party. Um, what would that look like, practically speaking? So let's say you get elected to Congress and Medicare for all comes up and there's going to be, we'll say, like a really large portion of the party that is going to vote against it. How do you, as someone who would be kind of a target from leadership, because, you know, I can't really foresee a situation where we get a progressive as a leader anytime soon. But right. like, what do you do? Because there's going to be pushback against you and members of the squad and progressives. They're going to try to marginalize you. How do you fight against that within the party? Yeah, I think it is about, uh, well, firstly, I will say, I'm, I'm hopeful that 2020 will, 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 will yield many progressive seats. Yes. Uh, yes. And I think, you know, the more we have um, people who want to lead 
because it's uh, it's an intrinsic motivator. They want to lead for the people stepping up and running for office. And the more we get in office, the stronger we become as a coalition, right? Because there are power in numbers for sure. But I think that we have to get a little vocal and we have to get a little loud. Um, you know, ideally, when, running for a, running a campaign is a lot of work. Running for Congress is a lot of work. I think it's meaningful and it's important work, but it is, it's nonstop. It's seven days a week. You're pulling 10 hour days, most days. Um, and, and so it, it's a lot. And then if you do end up getting elected, I think you have to look at it like, okay, your clock starts there. Of course, it would be great if you got reelected and you can continue to do the work that you're doing. But I think what happens is too many people get to Congress and they say, oh, how do I stay here? And I think it's the wrong approach. I think we need to win seats and then say, what can I change here? And you have that. You have your time, right? You have two years to, to make as much change as you can. And it is, it's building coalitions. It's, it's trying to um, get through to the other side. But I do think, um, you know, money in politics is a huge part of it because that's, a, and again, it's on both sides. Um, so a lot of the Democratic Party takes a lot of money and they don't want to vote against it. You know, they're big donors from the insurance industry or medical suppliers, pharmaceuticals. So it's trying to build those bridges. And, and I'll, I'll see when I get there, you know, what the response is. But if the response is, is not positive, then I think we have, it's our responsibility as representatives to continue to build within our community, right? Because once you get elected, your work doesn't stop there. It's not just about fighting in Congress, not just about introducing legislations, but it is about doing the work at home and building support and, and having like creating a national conversation around it, right? Because if the people rise up, well, those politicians will have no choice but to side with their people or they'll get voted out. And I think that's the fear we need to put in these politicians. Not that, oh, your donor might not donate to you, but that your constituents will not be there to back you because you won't represent them. Yeah. And I think that what makes uh, candidates like you and, you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar so different is that you guys aren't reliant on that corporate money that is raised by leadership. So, I mean, Nancy Pelosi can whip up votes for something because, you know, if they don't comply, um, she can shut off the funding mechanism, which they view as the lifeblood, you know, to get elected and reelected. Um, right. So you guys don't have to worry about that because this is a grassroots campaign. You don't take money from large multinational corporations. This is a people powered movement. So that in and of itself, like even if we can't get like... 50 plus 1% of progressives like you in Congress, just having a really large block that's vocal, I truly right. believe that that can actually make a difference. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, the 2020 election is pretty successful and we brought in the squad and we have like 35 members of the squad now, very bold, vocal, progressive people in Congress. What do you think can actually be achieved in the event we get a Democratic White House? Just with that squad, do you think that is actually enough to get policies like Medicare for All through if it's like 35 members? Is that big I, enough? Listen, I think you look at the impact that um, Representative I have to give her the respect, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, right? Yes, look, yes. Look at what just that one person has been able to do. Look at how she's changed the dialogue. I mean, it is, it's incredible. I think, um, and it really depends on who the um, the president becomes, right? I, I think if we have Bernie Sanders' presidency, well, then, yeah, we're going to get that passed. But if we, if for some reason... <laughs> The world goes crazy, and we have more of a you know moderate um, Democrat in in the White House. I think then it's it's incumbent on the progressives to really push for it and represent it. Um, 
And one thing I'm sorry, I, I meant to mention when you asked me about, um, you know, building that leadership and we talk about the corporate money. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I recently um, issued my first policy, which was around getting corporate money out of politics. Right? We, we know that Citizens United is it has has been so detrimental Um you know, for our country. And, and I think, and it's going to be really, really hard to overturn that. And there, you know, we, we can, there's all different kinds of theories and ways to do it, but I think it's about thinking outside the box and really holding our politicians accountable for what they are doing. Because I think most people are not aware of, of just how much cash, how much money, um, corporations are, and, and dark money are really filtering through politics. So I launched the Paid By Act, and I'm happy to say that um, several of my um, my progressive, you know, hopefully future colleagues in New York have, you know, signed on to the policy, and now many around the country have. And essentially, the Paid By Act is um, politician accountability. <coughs> oh, give me one sec. Politician accountability information disclosures benefiting you, so paid by. And essentially, what it does is it would it would require a um, a politician to disclose when they take a vote, like a major vote. It would require them to disclose how much money they took from a competing industry. So, like you see, like a Pete Buttigieg who's sort of done this flip flop where he supported Medicare for all, and now it's like this Medicare for all who wanted public option, whatever he's spinning. Um, but he has, you know, taken a lot of money from, you know, insurance, medical industry. So he would have to disclose that. And I think it's important for, um, you know, for, for Americans, for constituents to see that and understand that because that context is, is just, it's, it's paramount to understanding if your representative represents you or represents the people. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that there are so many people running for Congress who are already proposing legislation. Like that really shows you that people who are running are hungry. And this is like this new class of people who, lots of which will hopefully get elected in 2020. It's so like, it makes me optimistic. Like I always joke about how cynical I am and how, you know, my, my heart it has shrunken and it, it's growing a little bit. But, um, you know, it, it does give me hope to see so many people running with fresh ideas who actually care about policy and they're not going to get in and become complacent and just worry about, you know, getting reelected. Because if you, if you have that short-sighted way of thinking, then you're not going to represent the people. You're just going to think about what you can do that's politically expedient that will lead to you getting reelected. And then you just become right. like the rest of the corporate Democrats and do nothing. So it's right. so nice to see people like you come to the table with fresh ideas. So at this point, I know everyone who's watching is going to be on board with you. So tell us uh -huh. what we can do to help you and how we can get involved and how we can support your campaign. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. And, you know, our campaign is big enough for everybody. But as I said, we are running a grassroots campaign. So donations are so, so important. Um, even small donations are very important because it's, it's really what's sustaining us. So if you can donate, you can go to DorigoForCongress.com. Um, also follow us on Twitter at Dorigo Melanie. We're a little sassy on Twitter. So <laughs> if you like the sass, come on in. Uh, and we're Dorigo for Congress on Facebook and Instagram as well. So follow along. Um, but also important is to share out the information with your friends. If you like an idea, if you like uh, a policy that I'm talking about uh, or that I, you know, um, a new policy because we'll be rolling out some new ones as well. Please share them. Please tell your friends. I think uh, for, and I, I, you know, I know your, your audience is super engaged and it's so important, but a lot of people are coming to politics for the first time, really, right? And so 
sending out um, a message, whether it's a text message or an email to your friends and saying, hey, this is a great candidate. Why don't you consider donating? I know there are a lot of people that think, oh, well, I don't have money to donate. I don't have $100. I don't have $200. I don't have $500, $1,000, whatever they think in their head. But you know what? $5 donation, $10 donation, $20 donation, they all they all add up. Um, you know, and if we think about it, if we got everyone to just donate $5, we would all be um, running very successful campaigns. So every little bit truly does help. And it it's, it's so meaningful uh, for grassroots campaigns. Yeah, and think about this, like in the event we get, let's say 5,000 people watch this, if all mm -hmm. 5,000 people donated $5, think of the difference that would make. Right. Like right. she would be, unstoppable and you're already unstoppable but i mean you'd be even more unstoppable so melanie thank you so much for coming on the program thank you so much for running for congress i know this is a tremendous you know um amount of self-sacrifice that i would never be up to doing so thank you for having Not the yet. guts to run maybe one day maybe one day maybe never, one day <laughs> i never thought i'd be running for congress either i i never ever would have guessed in my wildest dreams that this would be my path but um you you never know you know some certain Things happen in life that ignite you, um, yeah. and you know we're we're fighting hard, and you know we're really excited, and I'm so so thankful and humbled for, that you invited me on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to have you on, everyone. It's DeRigoForCongress.com. Please donate, chip in a buck or two. Uh, anything helps, and most importantly, if you're in that third district of New York, get involved. A uh, volunteer, knock on some doors for Melanie, because that makes all the difference in a race when she is going to go up against a political behemoth who probably has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So Melanie, um, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you so much. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. As usual, we're not going to stop the show without thanking the people who make the show possible. That is our Patreon patrons, our YouTube members, along with our PayPal contributors. Thank you all so much. Um, even one-time contributions. Um, you guys are absolutely phenomenal. Memberships are great, but the people who just submit a donation here and there, thank you all so much for helping us. Um, it truly means the world to me. Um, so that's it. I have uh, nothing left to say, so we'll go ahead and leave that there. Thank you so much to my guest, Melanie DeRigo. Uh, yeah, I'll see you all next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is The Humanist Report. Thank you all so much. Take care. Mike is the worst progressive on YouTube. Please don't subscribe to him or become a patron. David Dole is so much better. Trust me, folks. He's doing a great job. He really is. Okay? <laughs>